everybody, welcome back to Grey Malkin Lane, the podcast where queer friends and allies gather to review and discuss the original X-Men comics from the 1960s. Uh, today is my favorite episode recording, as always. We get to do our monthly episode where we put a character on trial. This is a, uh, what I've been talking about the show for a few months. Uh, we are doing the trial of Alexander Summers today. Uh, the fan favorite, incredible character, Havoc. Uh, who I have such strong feelings about, and I've been looking forward to this recording all week, uh, or all month actually, just so I can hear my brilliant panel's responses to <laughs> this incredible character. Uh, before we jump in with introductions, let me do just a little bit of an intro on Havoc himself. Anytime I do these characters, I read their entire chronology in order. I try to pick out all of the relevant things. Uh, sometimes I gotta skip some stuff <laughs> and try to just focus in on the actual character. But it took me some time to sit down with Havoc's uh, complexities. He's a fascinating character who's been pretty consistent over his nearly 60 years of publication history at this point. Uh, he is uh, wonderful to kind of sit in one place and look at his story as a through line. He's the guy that tries too hard, somehow kind of never measures up. He's consistently kind of incapable of seeing the complexities of the world, maybe a little bit due to privilege. But he's also the guy who has too much power, who struggles to contain it, because if he ever lets it out, he devastates things. Uh, like many other mutants, he's also the guy with the dark side. He's forever wrestling with plot devices that make him confront his own worst enemy, which is, of course, himself. But despite all of that, he's an incredible hero. He's a leader, and he's definitely uh, a fan favorite. There are people with very strong feelings about the Summers Brothers, and we're going to get to some of those today. Uh, let me have each of my guests introduce themselves. I am so thrilled to call all of you my friends and to welcome you back to the show. As you're introducing yourself, let us know uh, your gender pronouns, where we might know you from. And my favorite, or my question for each of you today as you're introducing yourself is just, what's your favorite Havoc story? Or what do you love most about Havoc? Uh, let's begin with my friend, Hussein Rashid. Hi, Hussein. Hey, Chad. Uh, hey, everyone. Good to see you all. Uh, we're on Zoom, by the way, for those of you listening in. Uh, Hussein Rashid, he, him. Uh, at this point, you all know me as a, a Grey Malkin uh, irregular. Uh, is that what we're going with? Uh, I, I love it. Uh, I'm here on and off uh, enough. That's my claim to fame. And I'm uh, I'm officially anointing myself Marvel fan number 74, just so you know where I've been <laughs> in the scheme on. Uh, uh, so that's, that's the other official title. And... Um, I wrote a book on Miss Marvel, or co-edited a book on Miss Marvel with another semi-regular guest on here, Jessica Valganzi. Uh, so please go buy it at your local bookstore now. We're <laughs> waiting. Just <laughs> come back. What do you love about Havoc, Hussein? Oh, what do I love about Havoc? Um, you know, I'm a huge Summer's Grey clan fan. Like, if you, if I were to just trim it down, that would be it. I would even try to redeem Vulcan slash Gabriel. And I, I, I like... Havoc, I think, because when he's first introduced, that tension and that relationship he has with Scott just feels so real and so thoughtful. And I just love how he grows into it, aside from the section that you've given me for this week, which I think is just utter crap. But <laughs> I think generally, I think that that relationship is actually really one of my favorites uh, in the X-Men universe. 
I, uh, uh, just in real time, I mixed myself a cocktail before starting and realized I added way too much lime juice. So I hope all of you enjoy <laughs> a regular puckered face as I sip slowly on my cocktail. Uh, let's go next to uh, the incredible Anthony Oliveira. How are you? Oh, me. Hi, I'm well. Uh, hi, everybody. I'm Anthony Oliveira. Uh, any pronouns are fine. Uh, you, ooh, I've been on the show a few times. You might know me from that. Uh, Mia Koopa on Twitter. And I occasionally write some comics, uh, including some Marvel comics, um, uh, X-Men stuff, mostly just the Marvel Voices Pride story, but I do some Young Avengers stuff too. Uh, why do I love Havoc? Um, I like Havoc because he's kind of dumb, uh, which I, <laughs> and he's over in over his head. And I really like, uh, a. a a dumb, beautiful blonde who doesn't know what he's doing uh, and who's willing to try on. I like that he's gone from being like mutant extremist to his usual default of being like an integrationist liberal who doesn't quite get what people are trying to explain to him. Um, I think he's like one of the many excellent foils for Cyclops as a character and I love watching him try to get past that into being his own character. So I think that's why he's had such a dynamic history. Um, and I'm excited to get into it. Phenomenal. I uh, I just recorded a Patreon episode with Ariana Mar on the Ungarai demons, which I'll release next week. Oh, yes. <laughs> and during during our recording, she's like, when I was reading, I saw the cairn and that was the thing Anthony <laughs> Oliver used in his Iceman story. She was so excited. It was adorable. <laughs> I love the idea that the X-Men casually grew up next to this demonic um, relic and it is it seldom comes up as a plot point and we're just left. It's like it's the background radiation of their lives. It just, just shows up on their front lawn from time to time. <laughs> Wonderful. It's good to see you, Anthony. Uh, let's go uh, to my favorite trial guest, uh, Noelle Reed. How are wow. you, Noelle? Noelle's, hey, been, Noelle's been on every trial since the start, so she has a, she has a claim. <laughs> I have every single trial. So that's probably how your listeners know me. Noelle, she, her. I also host uh, the X-Men Unraveled podcast. Um, very excited for the Alex Summers trial. Um, I like the weaknesses in his character because they feel so relatable. Like, I don't know. I don't regularly make the best decisions, but I'm usually trying my best. And... So I have this sort of like sympathy with Alex when he does all of the dumb things that he does. Uh, yes, Anthony summed it up nicely when we say dumb and blonde, <laughs> dumb and pretty. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then I'm thrilled to welcome my friend Andre Mason back on the show. How are you, Andre? I am doing well on this beautiful Sunday fall day in, in New Jersey of all places. <laughs> So, uh, gender pronouns, where we know you from, and what's your favorite uh, thing about Havoc? Gender pronouns, he, he, him, if you want to call me a girl, we can do that too, it's fine. <laughs> uh, but pretty much you can see me online talking about cop culture or just giving thirst traps, you name it, I'm there. Um, uh, but I, I want to say the reason why I like Havoc um, is because he is the Summers that couldn't. Just like everyone else said, um, he has never really come into his own. And I do really love the underdog of it all. And he is pretty much the only Summers, like I said, that couldn't do it. Like Cable led, Scott led, Ruby has led, <laughs> um, Gabriel has led, uh, Rachel has led. All of the Summers 
people, Summers Gray have really done their own thing. And then Scott kind of didn't get it until about five, six years ago. So <laughs> I do enjoy the fact that he has kind of clawed his way into his own, really. Fantastic. Uh, there's going to be some disparate opinions. Uh, our final jury member is going to give us lots of face today. I can tell. <laughs> I'm thrilled to welcome uh, Havoc's number one fan, Mr. Rob Salerno. How are you, Rob? I'm great. Thank you for having me back. So good to see you. Uh, so same questions. Uh, I'm Rob Salerno. Uh, he, him pronouns, but whatever. Uh, also, <laughs> um, uh, where do you know me from? I uh, Twitter, Instagram. I I have been maintaining a blog that I started during the pandemic uh, that was chronicling all of uh, Iceman's appearances in chronological order to see has he been gay this whole time? And yes, very much so. Um, uh, I, I I last left off around um, uh, the onslaught crossover, and I've been meaning to get back to it at some point, but who knows? Um, as for uh, um, Havoc, uh, I've I've been a fan since you know I first collected those Marvel trading cards back in 1990, 1991. And those, that Jim Lee art of uh, just like Havoc tearing apart some like nondescript building looked so cool to me. And then I just loved the character as I uh, got to know him through Peter David's run of X Factor. So, you know, my start with him was actually Havoc as a leader. And um, I feel like I'm going to disagree with a lot of the panel uh, based on what people have said so far in this, uh, uh, in the introductions. Um, I, I think, first of all, like, you know, Havoc is, uh, he, he's, not, he's rarely written this way, but he is meant to be a genius. Uh, he graduated college at 18. Um, as a star athlete as well. <laughs> and uh, he has been a leader for most of the time that he has been in publication. Like he, his, his time as a follower of the X-Men is actually quite short. Um, but uh, I, we'll, we'll get to that as we get to the trial. So, yeah. I am so thrilled to have you all here. Lastly, I'm Chad Anderson. I use he, him pronouns. Uh, you know me from this show, uh, if you're listening. I, uh, I like Havoc. It was most fascinating for me to stack up all the different parts of him. I knew him from like Australian Outback Havoc and like Peter David X Factor Havoc. Uh, it was really astounding to me reading like what a shitty 20 years he's had. <laughs> His last like 20 years of publication history. This guy has been through it. There are characters that kind of get used as like, uh, let's turn him evil or like mutilate him and heal him consistently. Uh, uh, Hellions has been one of my favorite books in the last few years. And Havoc was the kind of joke in the background in that book, even though it was brilliant. He's just, he's really been through it. I'm looking forward to him kind of getting his day in the sun a little bit, but I genuinely like this character uh, for a number of reasons. So as we're starting, we're just gonna kind of divide up his history. You guys are familiar with our trials. We do a little bit of character analysis first, and then we will get into the trial points. Uh, as a reminder for our more recent listeners, the early trials, we would have each jury member present a, uh, a defense and a prosecution in each, excuse me, Yes, that's correct. In each sec uh, they would have two different sections. Today, we're trying the new format where everybody does both the defense and prosecution in just one section. So it limits the amount of massive reading <laughs> has to do coming <laughs> on the show because it's already a lot. So uh, as I'm introducing Havoc, I'm going to I'm going to uh, set up some talking points. Alex is a lot of things. He's a leader. He's a brother. He's a hero. He's a nuclear reactor with an intense amount of power that is barely contained or controlled. But he's also been a terrorist, a government agent, a geologist, a space pirate, a hopeless romantic, a down-on-his-luck try-hard, 
and well, a submissive bottom on a leash when it comes to Madeline Pryor. <laughs> uh, before we get to the trial, I want to kind of frame our conversation around three different sections. The first one that really stood out to me is this idea of Alex as a tryhard. When Alex was a child, his parents were kidnapped by aliens uh, and believed dead. They were in a plane in the air. He and his brother Scott were pushed out of the plane before it exploded, uh, and they had one parachute. Scott had to save Alex's life, and Alex would spend the rest of his life seemingly kind of recovering from that initial trauma. Scott ended up in an orphanage secretly in the care of Mr. Sinister, while Alex was adopted by the Blanding family, the Blandings had lost a son, and Alex was expected to take their boy's place, something that Alex could never quite do. He never seemed to quite measure up for them. Alex studied ge geology, got amazing grades, was a top athlete. When he graduated, Scott showed up in his life, and he had never told the X-Men that he even had a brother at that point. A few years later, when Alex joined the X-Men, the shadow of his brother seemed to loom over him. He became the lover of Scott's estranged wife, Madeline Pryor. He later became the leader of X-Factor, a team that Scott had originally been in charge of. Later still, after Scott murdered Professor X while possessed by the Phoenix Force, Alex was put in charge of the Avengers Unity Division in Uncanny Avengers, wanting to make amends for his brother's failing. So much of his life seems wrapped up by his brother's actions. In all of these incarnations, Alex has constantly wrestled with being good enough and making the right decisions. He felt like a bad leader, second-guessed himself, and constantly felt compared to Cyclops. Havoc has been part of multiple versions of the X-Men, as well as the Hellions, the Defenders, Xavier's Underground Enforcers, the Dark Descendants. He's been the leader of X-Factor, the Starjammers, the Brotherhood, the Six, and the Avengers Unity Division. In the infamous X-Factor number 87, Havoc attends a therapy session with Doc Samson. I'm going to quote it here. Samson says, you don't look very relaxed, Alex. Well, to be honest, I have had a great deal of trouble relaxing these days. I feel like I'm always looking over my shoulder, either making sure that the others aren't getting into trouble or watching out for whoever might be attacking us next. Samson says, you feel as if you're carrying a great deal of responsibility then? Havoc, of course I am. If anything happens to one of my people because I let my guard down, it's my fault. Samson, how often do you have this feeling? Havoc, all the time, sometimes more than other times. Samson, Alex, tell me about your brother. Havoc, the ideal leader, dependable, dynamic, determined. Samson, do you love him? Havoc, well, I mean, what's not to love? Samson, that doesn't exactly answer the havoc. Okay, okay, maybe I'm a little jealous, all right? Scott just seems to command respect, and me, I have to work my butt off for it. I feel like I'm always playing catch up with him. So I've been tense, maybe even detached. It's not like, excuse me, like I'm not living in the here and now, but instead I'm trying to stay two steps ahead of everyone so I don't screw up. I feel like I'm always being judged by Scott, Val, Lorna, the team, and I keep wondering how I measure up. Samson, why don't you ask them? Havoc, because I'm afraid of what they'll say. Something is going to happen, definitely. Much later in continuity, when he's the leader of the Avengers Unity Division, Alex gives a famous public speech, and there's a fascinating thing happening here where we see the Avengers trying to ally with the disenfranchised mutants, and they put Havoc up at the front of the media cameras as their poster child. As he's giving a speech to pacify the public, he says, my name is Alex Summers. I'm a student of Professor Charles Xavier. This team is an embodiment of his simple dream of all people working together, a fight more important now than ever. Recently, the world saw my brother Scott infused with the power of a god, and while he tried to make a lasting change to fix what he saw as broken, no man should ever unilaterally take action or choose for so many. It is hubris. 
I never quite saw things as my brother did, and later our views diverged even further. I don't see myself as born into a mutant cult or religion. Having an X gene doesn't bond me to anyone. It doesn't define me. In fact, I see the word mutant as divisive, old thinking that serves to further separate us from our fellow man. We are all humans of one tribe. We are defined by our choices, not the makeup of our genes. So please don't call us mutants. The M word represents everything I hate. A woman asks, well, if you don't want to be called mutant, what should we call you? And he says, how about Alex? So I know I just summed up a lot of stuff altogether, but this idea of Alex as a tryhard. Let me hear some of your thoughts on this section of Havoc's character. <laughs> Whoever would like to share. Um, I'll go because um, I want to piggyback off of what Rob had said about the fact that he had always been a leader and stuff like that. Yes, this is the moment where you believe that he can lead. I think where we get into the area of him being a tryhard, there's always someone else in charge. I've always felt that Alex has been a puppet, like from the start. Like I enjoy him. I think that he has so much potential to be a grander leader if he just would have stayed in that position. He would defer to everyone else every single time, even an X Factor. I uh, I have so many thoughts about this. Speech. You know, I, I I I'm okay with him sort of starting like, hey, my brother Scott and I have different philosophies, and Scott took his power all over the place, and he should have. Okay, I'm okay with that. That's that's fair. And then this whole, uh, uh, you know, don't uh, you know, I I'm not different than anybody else, and my genetic makeup doesn't give me loyalties. Is like. Nice for you to want to say that in an ideal world, but the fact of the matter is it does. You're forced into a category. And by you not taking that, I, I just I just don't feel this. I don't feel this in, in Havoc's arc. I don't feel this in this specific story arc. It feels like it's a cop-out. It feels like Havoc wanted to do something bold and daring and then just sort of chickened out at the end and said, kumbaya, and sort of ignored everything that got him to that point. Yeah, I, I I feel kind of in two directions with uh, with that specific story. Um, I I love most of Uncanny Avengers, um, but uh, it does feel like Remender in, in that speech is having Havoc go backward thirty years in in his character development, um, and going back to like the Havoc who would rather just be like you know looking at rocks in in North uh, New Mexico. Uh, rather than having any involvement with uh, mutants whatsoever, which, you know, th that was sort of like the take on him, even at the beginning of X Factor, but by the end of that run, that's not his character anymore. Uh, so it really did feel like a retrograde thing. And I was willing at first to give it like, you know, the benefit of the doubt, like, okay, well, his maybe his take is that he just watched, um, you know, the end run of Cyclops's uh, sort of extreme direction where, you know, he tries to take over the world and kills Professor X and, and everything kind of goes to shit. And he's like, okay, well, maybe go back a little further, take a few steps back. But I, I that's one element of, of that whole book that I feel um, is, is uh, just ultimately like misplaced and never really lands for me. Anthony, go. I, I uh, yeah, I, I I think I have 
I actually thought that this was the section I was getting for the trial, <laughs> which is the part is. I wanted to. <laughs> um, uh, I, I this to me, I'm interested in the speech because I do think yes, it is. I agree with Rob. It does take him back such a distance as a character. What I find odd about this, but I can I, again, I can kind of believe him sort of resetting here that like. I feel like he has spent a lot of his time arriving late to his identity as a mutant, um, variously aware that he could, for example, pass, he could go be the football star, he could go be the PhD and have this just be like a weird thing he does at parties sometimes, you know, like that is kind of his experience of mutancy. And I think that is one of the reasons he's actually a neat foil for Cyclops, where it's like my visor, I must think and control this at all times. And Havoc's like, I, I don't care, you know, like, um, and this sort of very latent experience of his mutancy and the living monolith stuff and all that. Um, I don't mind the reset of him because I can kind of believe it. And it does feel like part of his arc with X Factor and like, what if we collaborated with the government, you know, what bothers me about the book is I think the book agrees with him. Um, I don't think at the beginning of that book, when he gives that speech about how like, what if what, the word mutant just divides us and I don't see color and like the, this kind of message <laughs> is actually kind of baked into that arc and the unity squad in general, right? Like it's a position that Wanda voices in that book as well. Like, being a mutant has brought me nothing. Like it's brought me nothing but misery. I wish I could just be normal, right? And it, um, as I find this actually the most loathsome part of Alex, and I do like stories that kind of try to interrogate it and try to get him to see why this kind of bland, liberal, love is love kind of message isn't enough. Um, I My favorite version of Alex is when he's like, leading a brotherhood and being like, well, fuck it. Let me just try to do something at least. Um, it's an interesting speech. And I think the problem I have with it is like, I think the book agreed. <laughs> <laughs> there's a, there's a fascinating piece to Alex as, I mean, I know a lot of gay men who are very self-hating, like they, yeah. they hate the gay part of them. And Alex has always struck me as a character who does not love being a mutant. His power is hard to contain. That would be hard to live with. And I get that. And there's also different eras of history, right? As the leader of X Factor, for example, he's a very public figure versus when they're in the outback hiding and he's left without civilization and has to fend on his, on his own. This era where Cyclops has very publicly killed Professor X uh, is, is a really... Mm, this is a time when mutants are endangered and they're just kind of being reborn as a new species. And you almost wonder how much that affects his psychology. I would love to hear your thoughts on the Cyclops-Alex relationship. Right from his first appearance, there's this idea of, oh, Scott's so much better than me. He has it so much easier than me. Uh, but, you know, Alex was the one that was adopted. Like there's a there's an interesting interplay in their relationship that's always there. And Alex, so much of his history, it's him following in Cyclops's footsteps and trying to do a different or better job. I don't know. Any thoughts on that? What's interesting to me about that is that they they are two characters who actually share very little screen time. Um, like there there aren't that many classic stories where where Havoc and Cyclops actually like have a conversation or even on the same team together. Uh, I, you know, when we get to my section, we'll cover some of that. But, um, you know, it, it's usually one or the other is in an X-Men book. Um, 
And interestingly, when when he is first introduced, actually, like the story is kind of bending over backwards at first to say that Cyclops is jealous of Alex and thinks that Alex is the natural leader. Um, and, and he's just so commanding and smart and, and always knows what's right. And that's like the actual opposite of what ends up happening. And it would have been fascinating to me to see that dynamic actually play out between the two of them. Um, if only, you know, the book hadn't been canceled and yada, yada, yada. Sure, <laughs> sure. Uh, Noel, go ahead. I feel like siblings are always such a complicated relationship. Like I have, I have one younger brother, we're very close, and I was very much the like older child who did everything that they were supposed to and did well in school. And my brother was kind of the more like, there's other things that I care about. And that dynamic is just, siblings, no matter what, I feel like it's just complicated. There's the sibling rivalry, but then this just love for each other. But having that distance between Alex being adopted and Scott sort of staying in that very traumatic environment of the orphanage, it just, it complicates it so much further. And seeing how, you know, Scott kind of, um, progresses in the mutant world more than Alex has a chance to and seeing Alex try and catch up and feel like he's always second place um and he doesn't he doesn't seem to have the ability to navigate that and to find his own way and find his own way as a person um and I don't know I don't know what that is because it seemed like he's very accomplished before he ever meets the X-Men so I don't know if it's just Re rejoining with Scott that like sort of stunts that growth or what it is, but just the their interplay once they're back together is very interesting because like I said, siblings, it's always complicated. Scott certainly screws up a lot and seems to be forever forgiven and have every another chance consistently. But then again, so does Alex. Uh, Alex is always given that next chance, but it's almost like he sees Scott as getting more chances and he he's getting more consequences somehow. There's an interesting interplay or rivalry between the two of them. I think it's uh, it's pretty fascinating. Uh, okay, let's move to the next uh, section we'll present. Uh, this is what this one I titled the powerhouse. In X-Factor Minus One, we see Alex's power activate for the first time. There's a boy named Vincent, and this is the same kid who was responsible for accidentally killing the Blanding's son, the one that Alex was adopted to replace. Uh, Vincent attacks Alex and his adoptive family, and Alex's powers lash out and just obliterate the boy. So Alex was a kid. We're not going to put him on trial for this, obviously. But Mr. Sinister has assessed Alex's powers and found his genetic potential less than that of Scott's, which is a weird another way that he doesn't measure up, even though he doesn't necessarily know Mr. Sinister's assessment. Uh, <coughs> excuse me. Sinister buries Alex's memory of this event that takes genetic samples and later uses that DNA to connect Alex forever to Ahmed Abdul, the living pharaoh, who we will do the trial of someday on this podcast. <laughs> Alex would learn many years later that he has the mutant power to absorb ambient cosmic energy, store it in his body, and then release it in powerful destructive plasma bursts that blast out of him in blue or yellow concentric circles. Uh, Abdul also absorbs these, uh, these plasma rays, and it uh, allows him to grow to inestimable size, even up to planet size at some point. He's often called the living monolith. There are some other mutants that have power like this, that is just, if they tap into it, it's potentially very destructive. Sienna Blaze and the Armageddon Man come to mind. Uh, side note as well, when Carl Lycos absorbed Alex's mutant energy, that's what transferred his, or, or transformed him into Sauron, but that's 
that's a story for another time as well. Uh, while there are times Alex is able to control his powers, they always seem to flare out of control. In one of his earliest appearances, he's given his containment suit and his codename by Larry Trask, the son of the guy that made the Sentinels. It's his classic black costume covered in circles, and it's helped Alex control or contain his powers at times. Many uh, people seem to use Alex as a weapon in their hands. They wind him up and point him at a target. They mess with his mind or flirt with him or give him some sort of particular cause. But no matter his mistakes, he tends to be forgiven quickly and then welcome back to the X-Men or X-Factor with open arms. Uh, at, right after his powers activate in X-Men number 57, original run back in the 60s, listen to what he says. Can't you see? Doesn't the evidence of your eyes mean anything to you? Does somebody have to die before you realize I'm a walking, talking disaster area? That latter-day pharaoh told me that I could absorb cosmic rays, turn them into pure destructive force, but I didn't believe him till I had to escape from his own airtight chamber. Then it was as if my very fear, my frenzied desperation, were suddenly transformed into savage, stone-smashing energy. If I raised a whole temple all in one rash instant, can you imagine what I might do to a living, breathing human? For if I still can't control my power, can't turn it on or off, one second from now, I might destroy you all. And later, he says, so this is what it means to be a mutant, to be afraid to touch anything, afraid even to breathe. And yet, was there ever, was ever another mutant so terribly, desperately alone? Even Scott, who's always lived in fear of what his optic blasts might do, never had to cope with power like mine. Power that makes my every gesture a threat, my every movement a menace. And this is just a note. It's a story that's not touched on outside of this story, but in Exiles 28 through 30, there's a, a thing where Alex is getting mind controlled by an alternate reality self. The time broker, who's an extra dimensional character that sends the ex or the exiles to different dimensions, not as Connor Goldsmith would say, don't worry about it. <laughs> it's not necessary. <laughs> but uh, he states that in many uh, in many realities, Alex is known as the nexus of all realities, which is something the Scarlet Witch uh, shares, uh, and that he often in other realities will become unstable and then affect Alex's in other realities and drive them mad. So the time broker has had to eliminate a lot of havocs in other realities. So just as we're covering his, his powers, it's an interesting thing to consider. Uh, let me hear your thoughts on, on Alex as a powerhouse or on his power set. I have to be mean and say, I can't stand this. Like, oh, I have it the hardest. Uh, nobody understands. Like, okay, talk to some mutants who aren't human passing. Talk to Wanda, who who can rewrite reality. Like, if you want to talk about like mind numbing power, um, so I find it very frustrating. Like, every person, whether they're a mutant or not, has their own struggles and their own trials that they face, and you can never compare it to somebody else's. And so I I just hear this and I find myself extremely frustrated by it <laughs> i um you know no but, but that's the way he was in the beginning though right like i guess we can just say that in the beginning it was hard for him to control it because there was you know no professor x around no one was training him how to use these powers you know we can say that yeah he was definitely a danger to himself because he didn't know what the fuck was going on <laughs> or how to like really navigate and manage it like by that time scott had control over his eyes for someone who you know needs something to control like he had his own containment situation so we can honestly say in the beginning maybe that's true like you know he was obnoxious because he's like oh what was me but like there are other people who had it worse <laughs> if we're in that comparison moment 
I, I, think I, I just want to I want to echo Andre here is that you know I think in the early period I, I hear you Noel and I'm I'm absolutely sympathetic, but I think I I think I agree with Andre. I said it's early enough in the idea of mutants that he is at that point the most powerful mutant on Earth, right? That we know of by X Men fifty seven. Mm-hmm. Right? There's no comparison. One is not at this stage. Um, Magneto's not at this stage. Uh, so I, I really have a lot of sympathy. One thing I will say, just I have to go back. I know this is a trial of havoc, but you're going after my boy. You're going after Scott Summers. He <laughs> did not murder Professor X, right? <laughs> Professor X taught him to protect mutant kind against the greatest threat. And who's damaged mutants more than Professor X? I don't know. I mean, Centennials are okay, but Beast, but that's because of Professor X, right? It's like (laughs) it's still on Professor X at the end of the day. Um, So at the end of the day, Professor X is a jerk. Scott's just doing his thing. It's it's, he's protecting the mutant race. It has nothing to do with murder. So you're all officially invited back to the trial of Scott Summers when we get. Anthony, what did you want to share? Go ahead. Uh, I. I agree that it is like, oh, woe is me, the pretty mutant. Um, but I actually think it hits the real taproot of what makes the character work. Uh, just sort of to go back to sort of the ideas we've been kind of developing. Like um, Alex's articulation of his problem makes sense to me if you do read it as a character who has sort of lived the life of this charming jock life. Uh, and has to hide it now, like has discovered like the thing about himself that makes him different. And then to me, the containment suit works as this kind of mask for mask. I have to pass at my workplace amongst other people, because if they know this one thing that makes me different, all of this amazing stuff I've built for myself will fall apart. Right. And that he is sort of like the headless torso on Grinder, right? Like that is Alex's experience. <laughs> well, of his he's the opposite. It, like his character design is literally the opposite. Right. It's, but it's, it's just, just a head exactly. with no <laughs> Exactly. But it's the same thing, right? Like he has to have every inch of himself covered. Like he has to have it always under control. And that to me is why even though in some ways it's the same metaphor as Scott, right? Like I have to wear this thing at all times, but it reads almost entirely in the opposite direction. Whereas Scott starts to feel like a disability metaphor, a like um, a person who, when they move through spaces is marked as being different and must always be aware of how they read as marked. Alex has to hide it and can hide it, right? It, it feels he has a lot of similarities to me with Warren, right? Like, again, like this beautiful blonde jock who can pass if they want to. And when they choose not to pass are great PR stunts, right? That's why Valerie Cooper wants him to be the head of X Factor, because it's like, well, if that guy's immune, it can't be that bad, right? Um, and it's why it sounds awful when he's saying these things. And it's like, that guy is a pterodactyl, like, like, <laughs> you know, but, but that to me is how the metaphor functions for him. I, uh, the idea of him being contained, uh, that's just something I hate in my personal and professional life. When I have a lot of energy to give it, I have to hold it back. That idea of containing myself was rough for me. And that's literally his power set. I understand the fear he has because if he lets go, his first power explosion literally destroys an entire pyramid. And yeah. that's that's part of what makes him work on teams in interesting ways as well, because he's the character who either hates himself for being a mutant or tries to embrace it. And when he embraces it, someone usually gets hurt. 
so this, yeah. that idea of containment and and I love I fucking love the visual of him those circles popping out of his chest or his hands when he's just exploding shit I love that in the comics is what I love most about him actually is that visual of his powers working I think is phenomenal yes but there was no explanation for the crown there was none <laughs> no, no. <laughs> this is actually like my my biggest pet peeve with this character design is they make this whole uh big point about like he has to wear this containment suit in order to control his powers but you see him walk around without the containment suit all the time, all the time. Like, huh? even from the beginning and i'm like well what is the consistency what are the rules around this and then the headset doesn't make any sense to me it never has it's it's the weakest part of the design and when you go back and reread that original story the headset is a mind control device that <laughs> the trasks gave him the only part of the containment suit that is actually like meant to work is the part on his torso with the circles on it that's mm -hmm. that's literally the only part he needs to wear but he wears the head the, the mind control piece and that's like his signature look for the next 30 years of comics or 20 years of comics at least. And I've never understood it. No, I love his brotherhood look where it's the black suit and that sexy little red harness. Yeah. And the shock yep. of blonde up top. That's my favorite of his looks. <laughs> Agreed. <laughs> Uh, he's a uh, he's got some iconic costumes. We'll run a we'll run a costume gallery when we're putting the trial out. But it was really fun to to compare. I love how people will take the original designs and do a little modification. I think the biggest standout from all of those was his original uh, X Factor seventy one with the jacket and the open chest and the the hair you know with the gambit head sock kind of thing. Uh, I like his look. He's he's a sexy character. Almost always, he looks great. Uh, I I mostly like him shirtless running in the desert, of course, but. <laughs> So uh, let's go to the third section uh, I prepped here. The, the third part of his character that really stood out to me in my research is what I called the man with two faces. Much like Archangel and other X-Men, Havoc has a dark side that seems to be consistently right under the surface, ready to be unleashed. And when you have power, like Alex has power, that's a very scary thing. He has been mentally manipulated or influenced by Psylocke, Eric the Red, the Goblin Queen, Malice, Sauron, Mr. Sinister, the Dark Beast, Empath, and the Dracula of the mutant X-Earth, and some might argue Captain America during his <laughs> Uncanny Avengers run, as well as Professor X, and maybe even Valerie Cooper on this list. He has his mind rewritten by the Siege Perilous. He's been possessed by his own dark side from the mutant X-World. He's been inverted by chaos magic, turning him into a dark version of himself, which was matched by literally half of his face being burnt. Alex is always struggling to be in control, and it's Worth noting that I, I'm assuming many of you are going to use this argument in your prosecutions and or defenses. And it makes sense because when we sum up this character's history, a lot of his crimes are summed up in these sections. There are many mutants whose emotional control affects their powers. Think of Storm getting upset and causing bad weather patterns as an example. Or characters who are super strong that if they don't contain it, they can easily hurt someone by touch. But there are other mutants whose powers affect their emotions, making them mad, unhinged, or even prone to violence. Think of 60s Magneto as a perfect example of that. Havoc in Uncanny X-Men 339, and this is during his Brotherhood arc, he says to Cyclops while they're fighting, from the moment our mother tossed us out of that plane, both you and I, our lives have been in free fall. I'm through with no longer being in control of my powers, my own mind. I refuse to be hunted by one sentinel after the next. I can think of eight different incidents when my thoughts have been controlled by one mutant lunatic or another since the moment I was first dragged into the X-Men. Never again, Cyclops. From this moment on, I am in control. 
Tell me your thoughts on this uh, section of Havoc's psychology. Again, puppet. <laughs> it's like, I, I feel bad for, for Alex only because, again, when he tries to get away from either his brother's shadow or just try to be his own person, someone comes and, like, takes that away from him. Um, and it's a constant thing, which, again, makes it very, very uh, strong to want to root for him. Like, there's this thing that you want him to be better. You want him to be above all of the things that seem so easily people can take like advantage of him. Um, and you see it in just how he behaves, especially with, with his brother. I think there are some moments in the books where he has these conversations with Scott, like, you know, you have it better than I do, or you don't really struggle as much as I do, or I have to do certain things to get to where I need to be. And th this is kind of like that moment for him. He and Warren need to create a support group together. They can be like the core two who have experienced add, no, this. Add, add Colossus to that, Noel, because he's another one that's like <laughs> so easy. Oh, yeah. Mentally yeah. manipulated. <laughs> yes. Yeah. There's uh, there's plenty of others, but those ones in particular, I'm always like, oh my God, again, like again. And like, it just creates this sympathy in me for this character because I just can't imagine if my mind was messed with one time how I would go on and handle it from there. Uh, he he personally can think of eight times. Like how how does he even know where to go? Like I get why decisions are hard for him or maybe he doesn't want responsibility because he has a lot of internal things that he needs to figure out and needs time to do that. I feel like every X-Men character has times when they are mentally influenced. There's the Malice storylines, the Phoenix storylines, the Shadow King storylines. The interesting thing about Alex for me is when he does bad shit during times when he's not being mentally controlled, when he uh, he uh, he allows himself to, I mean, the, the Wolverine Havoc Meltdown series is a great example of this. There's a girl flirting with him and he's like, yeah, let's go commit crimes together. And we see this type of behavior from him multiple times where he seems to be pointed in a particular direction and manipulated by somebody and convinced that what he's doing is right. Which is why I tossed Captain America on that list because during Uncanny Avengers, he's almost like, yeah, you're my, you're my golden boy, son. Come do this, make me proud kind of stuff when he's leading that team. Uh, he has this need to prove himself, and that sums up a lot of his relationship with Madeline as well, I think. Uh, it's an interesting part of his personality, this need to please someone that he values. Any thoughts on those types? He's not being... I, Chad, Chad I, I wonder... Sorry, Rob. I don't want to cut you off. No, no, go ahead. Um, but I actually want to come back to something Rob said earlier. I don't know if, how much of this is pleasing behavior versus Havoc is actually really smart. Right. I mean, that's the thing that, that and, 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 you know, Rob, when you said, it, I was like, you know what? I keep forgetting that because he's been written so poorly that that's where it gets written out. But he is really smart, but he's that type of smart that feels like it's analysis paralysis. He's like, I want to do the right thing and I want to learn everything I can to do the right thing. And then I can't because I know too much or I can't know enough to know how to make the right decision. And so he's looking for somebody to tell him what to do. Right. And, and I, I, I think that Captain America one is is a perfect example of that. It's like Captain America is not going to tell me to do something wrong. He knows what's right. I can't figure this out morally myself. And it lets him get out of that. It's not quite decision fatigue, but that that sort of his inability to move beyond his desire to know more before he can make a decision, right? He over-intellectualizes, I think. 
Uh, and so somebody like Captain America allows him an easy way out. Or the red, we, we should do a whole thing on the redhead, by the way. And, and it's fascinating. I mean, <laughs> Scott has one redhead in multiple variations. Alex and redheads is a whole other thing. You know? <laughs> um, what I was going to say was, you know, a part of this is that in a lot of, I agree, in a lot of these stories, it's it's not entirely clear uh, how much uh, Alex is in control or is being controlled. Um, the Brotherhood uh, one is, you know, a perfect example of this, largely because it's just so poorly written by Howard Mackey in the tail end of X Factor there. Um, X Factor and Mutant X were just like, you know, issue to issue, page to page, character motivations would change without any kind of clear setup. And, uh, you know, at the beginning, he's being controlled by Dark Beast. Then, no, it's all a, a trick and he's trying to control the Dark Beast. And then, no, he's actually working for the government the whole time. But, no, he was actually working against the government the whole time. It, it, none of it makes any goddamn sense. And it's really not worth revisiting. Um, but, uh, and then you get to the, the Havoc and Wolverine. I, I love that uh, miniseries. I, I reread it recently when it came out in the Wolverine Omnibus. It's beautiful, uh, yeah. It's beautiful to look at. Um, I I don't remember Scarlet convincing him to commit crimes so much as like she is manipulating him because she's the bad guy in this in the miniseries. Spoiler for this 40-year-old comic. Um, but um, he is he is also like along the way he figures out most of it and is the one who like like solves the issue at the end of the day although he doesn't he's he doesn't know even by the end that scarlet was actually the bad guy because wolverine decides to keep that from him um it it's 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 fascinating to me like so many of these stories i, I keep hearing this in like fandom groups you know uh you know he was like the little uh sub on the leash for for madeline Pryor, and i'm like no he was mind controlled by her and raped by her. Like, that's what that story is. If the genders were swapped in that story, we would be exactly clear what happened in that story. We wouldn't be calling it like, oh yeah, no, he was infatuated with her and he just wanted to please her. No, this is Mastermind and Jean Grey, but the genders have, have switched. Um, it's That's very much what's happening here. And, and it's completely clear that's what's happening because she does that to all of the X-Men in the story. All of them become their demonic counterparts. And, you know, some of them are are more scarred by it than others or talk about it more than others. Longshot, I think, leaves the team shortly after because of it. Um, it's it, 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 That story has always struck me as weird. And it's weird to me that we we keep going back to it as if it was this healthy relationship that he wanted to be part of. Um, and that's that's another thing that uh, when we get to Hellions, we we can talk about. But um, I I've, I found it weird that it's this this relationship that existed for like five issues in 1988 that we came back to 30 years later and was like, no, but she was the love of my life. Um, anyway, yeah, no, it, it there's a there's a weird element to it here. I do, I, but I I agree with uh, what Hussein said about the analysis paralysis. I, I really feel like that's a thing that he struggles with as whenever he's put in the leadership role. I'm going to go super psychologist for just a second. We, when we survive childhood trauma in real life, we develop coping mechanisms to get by. And as adults, we usually use the same coping mechanisms over and over again, much to our own detriment. And Havoc, there's that very, there's that very one issue flashback in X Factor Minus One, which I am going to do on the podcast soon, where he is, he's been adopted by this family. He's trying so hard to prove himself as the boy who is worth their love because he's lost everything. 
And I, I very much see adult Alex from that lens often. I, we're kind of laughing about it, but I see this as a character who comes out of some pretty abject trauma, who's just trying hard not to lose everything all over again. Uh, I really love this character, actually. We're, we're, when we do these trials, we focus on the shittiest parts of them sometimes, but I really love this character. Uh, Anthony, what were you going to say a moment ago? Uh, yeah, I, I maybe something in quite parallel to that. I'm actually right after this heading to a, a lesbian vampire uh, film festival. <laughs> like there is something about the kind of pick me puppy quality to Havoc, right? There is like when Noel was talking about Warren and Colossus, it's like, well, those are the hot beefcake subs. Like that, that is the three of them, right? Like the, the ones to go to Rob's point, like we flip the gender and it becomes quite clear. Oh, these are vampire stories. Um, and vampire stories are about coercion and, but are still erotic, right? Is sort of the, the Alex, maybe this is to Hussein's point too. Like Alex wants to give up his agency because then he can be the ideal version that will make this person happy and make them love him. Right. Um, these monsters often, right. Uh, whichever gender they are, whether from the first time we meet him, he's strapped to the living monolith's table in his like little bikini shorts, right? Like that, (laughs) the, the icon of that character is that moment, right? Like, Oh no, this handsome guy is going to be corrupted by these monsters, right? Like the bad guys are going to touch him and make him bad. And it's why even his body becomes kind of the site of corruption. Like when he gets, disfigured by Kang and he's like while he's evil he has the weird two-faced melty face right um what if you could ruin something beautiful is kind of the idea behind I think the phantasmatic element that governs this character and as you say that goes back to like literally like you are the summers that was cute enough to be picked if I stay cute if I stay handsome and charming and beautiful they'll keep picking me and I don't have to have the hard life, the mean golf life of Scott Summers, right? <laughs> <laughs> I love these trials where we can have different viewpoints and come from intellectual spaces about fictional characters. It it changes my understanding of them forever. I uh, I'm on fire right now, and I know all of you are having big feelings too. But I hope uh, I hope we we have these spaces where we can disagree and agree and kind of analyze and overthink and and, and I think it's incredible. Um, last thing I want to focus on very quickly is, uh, is let's just talk about his family and relationships very briefly. You guys, the Summers family is crazy. Once in a while, we need to realize how nuts it is. Uh, Chris and Catherine had two kids, Scott and Alex, but after capturing them, uh, they were taken to Shi'ar space. There was an unborn baby harvested from Catherine who became Vulcan. And then her DNA was used to create the Shi'ar hybrid, Adam X, the extreme Cyclops (laughs) married Jean Grey. At least three of their children from other universes and futures have come to this one with crazy power sets, giving Havoc some pretty powerful nieces and nephews, including Cable, X-Man, Oscani, and Strife, if you throw him in. (laughs) (laughs) Havoc has two children that he lost in other realities, the boy Scotty Summers with uh, the alternate Madeline Pryor in Mutant X, and Katie Summers, uh, which her loss in the Uncanny Avengers series with Havoc's wife, the Wasp, because people forget he married the Wasp, uh, but he was uh, she was lost to King the Conqueror. These lost kids uh, alone, the trauma of that has just got to fuck with your head. Uh, Chris, his father remarried, so he's got a stepmother, Hepzibah, the incredible Barbarella skunk lady in space. Uh, Alex has also been romantically connected with a lot of people, most notably to Lorna Dane Polaris, who's the daughter of Magneto. And I got this weird vibe of like, he he's kind of the brother of the heir of Professor X. 
so he and Lorna have this kind of weird Romeo and Juliet vibe almost. Their romantic connection is fascinating. Alex has often been connected to at Madeline Pryor as well. Uh, we've seen him romantically connected to, in no particular order, Wolvesbane. That was a bit one-sided on her part, of course. Uh, Layla O'Toole, Annie Gazakazian, Scarlett McKenzie, Janet Van Dyne, and Tam Anderson, the Genosian magistrate lady. Uh, so let's talk about his relationships briefly, his family and romantic relationships. What do you like? Who do you like him with? Discuss. Hmm. No mention uh, of Iceman, I notice. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I actually, I actually really like the ice. The Iceman again. I keep bringing it back to the Warren thing, but like he is Iceman's type, right? And the weird way that that turns into the love triangle of the Lorna Iceman Havoc thing is really interesting to me. Uh, both in its earliest versions in those first comics where he's like, that's my girlfriend. And Lorna's and Lorna like, I don't literally don't know what you're talking about <laughs> into even the Chuck Austin run, right? Where it's like the Iceman thing is playing this will they, won't they? And the Annie Gazakanian element is meant to play up, up to and including the moment where Havoc literally pees a body for Iceman. Like that's that's a plot point in the Chuck Austin run. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> Uh, so that's my that's my ship that I'm plugging right now. <laughs> Side note, and this has not been released yet, but I just interviewed Chuck Austin and asked him all the hard questions, and I view his run oh, wow. in such a fascinating way now. That'll come out in a few weeks. So. I wish I was there on that one because I had so many questions for him. <laughs> He's such a great guy. He's a great guy. Uh, so uh, who do you guys like Alex with? Who's your favorite romantic connection for him? Oh, uh, I'm 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 still a hardcore uh, Havoc and Lorna shipper. Um, that that relationship just I I feel like Peter David is the only one who ever actually like got their relationship. Um, maybe like some of the the a couple of the writers who followed James Mattias, uh his run on X Factors is, is uh, underrated as well. Um, but just that that vibe that they had, like they, you know, they were two people who they'd been separated for a long time. They could slip right back in because they were actually just, they had that connection. Um, they can take each other down very easily. Like they're constantly jiving at each other. That's the whole tone of the book though. Um, but I, I just, I, I love them as a couple. And um, yeah, I mean, like I, I get why like the relationship seemed to stagnate as the as time went on because worse writers were writing them but um yeah uh i i still i, I stand them i i have not I, I don't think there's any other like love interest of havocs that i've ever really been interested in yeah because they were essentially the soap opera power couple like like there's no other person you can see him with because he hasn't really been with that many people i mean like he has been romantically connected but in long-term relationships or even like a larger relationship it's literally just been Lorna and then whenever he's paired with Maddie it's just weird so you kind of like scoot around that and be like no I just like him with Lorna because that's all we ever know it's like when you have that conversation of who is better with Scott is it Gene or Emma but everyone like knows that it you know you had seen Scott with Gene for so long that's the only person you really see him with or like anybody else, like with, you know, you have these people who are power couples like Kitty and and, and, and Colossus or like, um, you know, uh, T'Challa and Storm. Like these are these power couples you can only see them with and that's it. 
the soap opera of their love story is fascinating. I feel like the only time Alex was ever happy was when they were living in New Mexico together doing their geological stuff. But nobody yeah. likes a happy story at a soap opera, right? But there's no, been yeah, they, they were the Luke and Laura of the X-Men world. Like that's literally it. So many times he's hurt her, she's hurt him. When she's uh, left Genosha during the Austin run and Havoc is right back from Mutant Dex and waking up from a coma and she's like, marry me now. And uh, I, there's there's so many compelling points to their relationship. They're tough. They know what they've been through together. They know what it's like to have your life lost and taken over. I really love the two of them together. No one chose Alex and Wasp together? Oh, boy. <laughs> oh, yeah, see, I didn't because I felt like that was kind of forced on us. Like... As, as much as that was a kind of fun thing, I you know, they just pair people with and they just don't need to. <laughs> like, I, but, but, I but, but, that one. I wasn't, I, I wasn't I, that one. I, I feel you, Andre, but I also have to say that I think for me, you talk about romantic linkage, but there's a lot of sexual linkage, but the only depth of emotion is, is Lorna, right? But I think the relationship with Janet actually is fairly emotionally, I think, at least more believable right than than anybody yeah. else mm -hmm. right so is is it a forced pairing yes but is it a well-written forced pairing i actually kind of like it still Absolutely. still yeah, sure, sure. still polaris right all the way no no mm -hmm. argument but i, I gotta say i kind of I, I felt like the the janet one was okay yeah and that's a fair point that's completely a fair point like because she was different and i will say that right. Okay, well, let's jump into the trial portion. I am already feeling so fascinated by this discussion and the ways that we view things. Thank you for all of your nerdiness, your preparation, your willingness to do homework, and your willingness to share analysis and intellectual discussion about this incredible character. Uh, as we get into the trial, I will do five different trial points. We will review sections of his history in chronological order. Each jury member will be uh, sharing their presentation, their thoughts on what makes Alex either culpable or acquitted in particular areas. And after each section, we will vote each of us. The voting scale, which is inept, but we continue to use it, <laughs> is one through five. Uh, if you vote a one, that means uh, a justifiable action in a particular section. Two, morally concerning. Three, definitely inappropriate. Four, over the line into criminal behavior. Five, pure evil. And during these sections, as we consider culpability, we consider motivation, uh, and you're allowed to be biased and have whatever feelings you choose to feel when <laughs> go through this. We're stacking up a lot of history, and Havoc has had a shitty 20 years. <laughs> okay, so uh, in this first section, uh, Noel has been assigned the section. We call this losing control. Uh, Alex lived in peace with Lorna for a long time. He used his containment suit as needed to control his powers, but circumstances led to him joining the X-Men who, who had gone underground to face threats to mutant kind. At this same time, Lorna was taken over by the entity Malice and joined the Marauders. The X-Men were believed dead after a battle with the adversary, and they moved to the Australian outback. And in isolation there, Alex began to really struggle with using his powers uh, appropriately. During this time, he started sleeping with Madeline Pryor, his brother's estranged wife. Uh, but there seemed to be consent, at least at the beginning, so we won't put that part on trial uh, here. Uh, the uh, the idea of Alex finally embracing his power and having to learn to live with it for the first time is a big part of this story. Uh, during this section, he savagely lashed out at Lorna slash Malice with his powers. He killed several mutants like Dive Bomber, who had been transformed by the Brood. He used his powers with the intent to kill during the massive Inferno War, which involved many mutants, the Marauders, and demons. When Madeline went mad with power and became the Goblin Queen, Havoc, although he may have been mind-controlled, 
turned against his allies and willingly became her goblin prince as she brought demons to New York City and prepared to sacrifice infants, including her own son, Nathan, who became Cable, in order to achieve power. Willing to follow Madeline's orders, Havoc savagely lashed out at Cyclops, seemingly with the intent to kill him, although he and Cyclops are immune to each other's powers, until Archangel defeated Havoc, and Madeline was soon defeated as well. After passing through the Siege Perilous, Havoc had his identity and memories rewritten, and he became a Genosian magistrate, there to enforce the country's policies in keeping mutants as slaves. His memories were eventually restored, and then he was thrust into an entirely new position, placed as the leader of X-Factor, a team of mutants who acted as government operatives. In this position, he was suddenly the face of mutant kind for much of the public, while considered a traitor by many mutants for his willingness to work with the human government. Uh, the key issues in this section are Uncanny X-Men numbers 233, 239, 241, and 242, X-Factor 38, Uncanny 251, the entire Extinction Agenda event, and finally X-Factor 71. Let me turn it over to Noelle. Okay, so for the prosecution first, my big question was, does Alex Summers have any principles or conviction in his heart? And as the prosecution, the answer is no. Uh, for proof, we only have to consider that he sacrificed any principles he held uh, for his desire for Madeline. Um, and he willingly signed on to sacrifice kids for Madeline, like actual human babies, one of them being his nephew. <laughs> yes. Um, and that was after he has this moment of clarity where he realized like, he's talking to Scott and Jean that they were right about who and what Madeline had become. But even after that, he joins her as the Goblin Prince to take part in the crime again of sacrificing babies. I could stop there. Um, <laughs> but uh, I won't. For someone who spent so much time and mental energy and probably some physical energy concerned and trying to contain his powers and trying to prevent any of the damage they could cause. He used them against Colossus and his own brother. And his only stated justification was that it was for love. And love is great, all about it, but it's not a justification for attempted murder or fratricide. <laughs> um, I cannot reasonably hold them accountable for what happened on Genosha because his memory was wiped. So I'm going to discard that as, as the prosecution. I don't think he was in the right state of mind. However, I can say that he is someone without integrity, willing to sacrifice his principles and his family and his humanity for some bomb ass pussy. <laughs> <laughs> okay. For Alex's defense. Um, first of all, I would like to say it's not run-of-the-mill pussy that Alex is after. Um, Madeline Pryor is a clone of Jean Grey, whose hotness has led to a decades-long love triangle, and she's in her Goblin Queen costume. Like, you know, I don't know. Blame the underboob. <laughs> under yeah, how, how, can he, who, how can he say no to anything that she asks him to do while she's wearing that costume? <laughs> and then there's also the influence of demonic powers. But the most important thing that I see is Alex Summers is a man whose driving principle is protecting others. When his powers emerge, he is focused on keeping them in check and preventing harm 
He hated the idea that he might kill anyone with them. And he tried very hard not to use them against other people. And when the X-Men fought the mutants transformed by the brood, he held back until he had to use the his powers to save Storm. And anyone who wouldn't do whatever it takes to save Storm is a criminal. And the person who saves her is a hero. And on the Madeline side of things, I think that he joined her because he understood the pain and heartache that she'd been through. He knew that she had been abandoned and cast aside by his own brother. And he, that led him to empathize with her and played into his natural tendency to be a protector. Um, and he even saw Scott choose in a very intense moment to save Jean's life over Madeline's. And yes, he was wrong in thinking that Madeline needed any saving, but he wanted to help her and protect her. Um, on Genosha, his memories had be been rewritten, so we can't hold him accountable for his amnesia. Um, and then when he realized the truth, he aided the mutants who were being persecuted and chose to stay there to continue to make sure that the mutates were safe and protected. So Alex is a man who always tries to protect those in need and those he loves, and that is not a crime. So let me turn it over to the jury. What questions or comments do you have in this section at all? Or what do you need in order to help form your opinion on your vote in this section? I think so, one uh, thing that... You, you, oh, oh, go, go Robin and Hussein. Okay. Um, I think one thing that I have always found really fascinating about fandom's reaction to the Inferno story is that, um, you know, everyone, like a lot of people are, are very quick to condemn Havoc for going along with Madeline Pryor and doing whatever, you know, she wants. And, you know, he's just her, her little like submissive bitch boy. Um, but at the same time, like, it is very rare to find fandom who finds what Madeline did morally wrong. Like she is the one who was the victim of Cyclops for years, who ran out on her, abandoned her, abandoned the baby. Um, and, and this drove her to extremes and she was corrupted by, by the demons, but no one that like she then corrupted like gets the same sort of uh, defense, which I find really weird. Um, I I personally think that he is uh, that he has nothing to uh, to be blamed for for what happened during uh, uh, Inferno. And then the Extinction Agenda story I find really uh, interesting because the Siege Perilous to me is one of these plot devices that like just doesn't make a lot of sense like the idea was that you were supposed to go out there if you walk through you are judged and you are given a new life based on that judgment um but like the new lives that the x-men get they're they're just given they're just made amnesiacs they're like you know peter walks around in soho and everyone's like oh look it's colossus um and he's like i don't know who colossus is what are you talking about i'm an artist uh and Havoc wakes up in Genosha and he's like, oh yeah, no, I'm a Genosha magistrate. And they're all like, no, you're you're an X-Man. We should probably kill you. But if you want to work for us, fine. Um, what I think is is funny about like the judgment aspect of that is that the Siege Perilous, I guess, to me, it reads to me like the Siege Perilous is like, oh, you're the guy you never wanted to be a superhero. You always wanted to be the mutant who just goes along. We're going to give you that and see what that, see what happens. And what happens is he goes along with it until he realizes that this is not right. 
And he is instrumental in taking down the Genosian government and then rebuilding like the civil society afterward until he's lured back into X Factor and kind of walks away from that. Um, so I, I don't think that, I don't think he has anything, uh, you know, morally culpable in, in this arc of, uh, of his life here. I think he's, I, I would, I would vote a one here. I think, uh, the extinction agenda is brilliant. We can talk about the Siege Perilous another time on the pod, but what it seemed to do is give a lot of the characters what they were asking for, but in a dark, twisted way. Havoc got fame, he got love, he got self-confidence, but it was the, literally at the expense of owning mutants as slaves. It's fascinating. Uh, and the idea of him in the Australian outback and his relationship with Maddie, I think it's kind of him, I don't know if I'm using a gay parallel, it's like that right after the closet, I'm in the big city and I'm figuring out who I am and I'm making some mistakes along the way as he learns to contain his powers. I love that era of him. It might be my favorite. Uh, was Madeline uh, right or wrong? Was she mind controlling him or was he uh, intentionally going along with her? That's the thing I'm kind of hung up on here. Let me hear some of your other thoughts. So I want to, coming off uh, Rob, you know, your point about uh, him being in Genosha, uh, going along to get along, you know, makes so much sense with the speech we started with that we hated because it feels like there's a really nice resonance there. Uh, Noel, I'm with you on your defense uh, of Havoc, except for one point. Uh, despite everything Rob just said, I, I really have, uh, I really have issues with the child sacrifice thing. How how, how do we defend? <laughs> like he's not running for governor of Texas, right? So like, what's the whole thing with him and child sacrifice? I yeah, I mean that was the big thing for me. Um, I and when I read it, I. Like, I can't discount the idea that there's some, like, demonic influence over his decision-making, but I saw it more as he was making active choices, and, like, he was just like, okay, this is what she wants to do, so child sacrifice is what I'm doing this afternoon. <laughs> yeah, it's it was the willingness that I had a problem with. Um only second to the fact that he was going to allow her to sacrifice his nephew, regardless of how he felt about Scott leaving Maddie, regardless about how he felt their relationship was or whatever the case may be, he was going to allow her to sacrifice his own relative. <laughs> it, you kind of have to draw a line somewhere where it, it feels like there's a moral issue. And I don't, I don't know if it's a gray area because we can apply real life logic to to this fictional character, whether or not he's making the appropriate decisions, because we can say that about any of them, whether or not they're making the appropriate decisions that's best for them in that moment. But isn't that's this true scary. of all the X-Men in that story? Sure. Like they're all working for Madeline. Yeah, they're all working for Madeline. But I mean, in the sense of the, of the matter is that he is, you never really know, there's no definitive proof that he is actually being controlled by her. We're assuming it is because it's Madeline, but there are moments where he's like making these decisions on his own. And, that, and he has a very, yeah. And like, for me, it was that one moment where he's very cognizant and he says, oh, Scott and Jean were right about you, Madeline. And from there, uh -huh. he continues <laughs> down the path of following her. So I feel like if there was any manipulation or like demonic influence on his decisions, like he had already taken the first step Toward, like it wasn't very hard 
<laughs> to get him across the line to child sacrifice. So I think the question you all need <laughs> yeah, to ask no yourself. Out the window for him. <laughs> I think the question we all need to ask ourselves is, do you believe that he was being controlled or not? Anthony, do you have any thoughts here before we vote? Uh, I think I think that the Inferno stuff to me, the last moment of his culpability is that moment where he goes into the bedroom with Madeline and we just see the shadow in the same way that to me, Madeline's last moment of culpability is really when she makes the demonic bargain kind of by accident in a dream. (laughs) (laughs) Like after that, to me, it is the whole Inferno story is just like this delirious Medea phantasmagoria thing. And it's like, well, like, morality is no longer involved at all really it's just sort of like this weird ghostbusters fever dream right um so to me that i don't see a lot of guilt for alex there i could see the character feeling guilty but to me it's like well this is all just like a weird vampire thing that happened to you more interesting ethically to me is the judgment that the siege makes of alex's character which i think is quite astute that he is a company man that he will do things mm-hmm. um for for just to be the good boy that gets a, a pin like a star pinned to his jacket the, the idea that captain america is one of his corruptors is actually i think quite interesting because it's true it was foreshadowing to me because yeah like, the company man thing whereas he takes orders it literally is a a mirror no pun intended to the siege of perilous um <laughs> to what he always is like even when he gets the x factor and i say this because i always say that he's a puppet and it could be a negative thing but he really wasn't in charge it was all of it was coming from val like it was such a a very bridge when he gets to genosha in that sense that he's literally being the guy that is getting the orders and just executing them and i do think that I do think that he is still a heroic character. He still realizes, wait, this is wrong. I shouldn't be doing these things. Like that's kind of the chance the siege gives him in that moment. But I do think it puts its its finger on what's wrong with him. And politically, it looks like Extinction Agenda. And personally, it looks like Inferno. But those are the same critiques, right? You're always going to be the boy on the leash, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's true of his character. But at an ethical, like, as a member of this trial, I'm like, well, he was he was mind controlled. It's not his fault. Like, whatever. <laughs> <Fascinating>. <laughs> but at a story I, level, I think it gets him. I'm seeing things in such a different light. Uh, fascinating. Okay, let's vote in this section. Again, I'll read the scale one more time. Uh, one is justifiable action. Two, morally concerning. Three, definitely inappropriate. Four, over the line into criminal behavior. Five, pure evil. Uh, Andre, you go first. <laughs> I'm stuck between two and three on this one Um, because yes, it is morally concerning, uh, especially when it became uh, how he was connected with Maddie and Inferno, very questionable actions. Um, And for me personally, after reading Inferno, you never really got why he turned like, and that's again, was he being my control or not? Like, uh, and with Genosha definitely inappropriate. Uh, but again, we can say that we can just chalk that up to the fact that there was an external circumstances that were plaguing him. So I think in this sense, I think the Inferno arc has encompassed this a little bit more than Genosha area. So I'm going to say uh, two. Anthony. Uh, yeah, I, I think I'm at 
as I just, I got to speak most recently. So I think my argument is pretty clear. Like, I think it's a one situation, (laughs) like a strictly ethical matter, but I do think these are quite revealing of character actually. Um, But, but ethically one. I got babies, killing babies. It's a thing. I got to go four here just because I'm not sure where Alex is. I think he's he's not culpable for, for 90% of it, but I think that one thing is just enough to make me put him at a four. Uh, I am voting one. Rob, I think I was closer to four, but you convinced me. Rob. <laughs> one. And Noel. I'm going to go three. I feel like he's out of control sometimes, in control in moments. So I, at least, I have to give him a three. This is uh, this, this is already pretty divisive. We're all, like all over the board in our votes. I think it's fascinating. This gives us a 12 out of 30 in this section. And we will go to section two, which is the Brotherhood era. The jury member assigned here is Hussein Rashid. After faithfully serving as X-Factor's leader for months, during which he continued dating Polaris, Alex lost control of his powers again and needed his containment suit back. He was captured and brainwashed by the Dark Beast, who was working for the entity Onslaught, into being a more savage, directive version of himself. And he was placed in charge of a group called the Brotherhood, including members Fatal, Random, and Post. At some point, Havoc claimed the brainwashing wore off and he was in control of his own actions. The Brotherhood attacked X-Factor, and Havoc used his powers harshly against Polaris, causing her to have a heart attack. After making plans to take down anti-mutant presidential candidate Graydon Creed, Havoc, with his teammate Ever, tried to assassinate reporter J. Jonah Jameson on a plane full of humans, and during the following fight, he tried to kill Cyclops and dozens of civilians. Havoc staged a prison break to recruit Fatal and Dark Beast to the Brotherhood, then recruited Nate Gray, Havoc's alternate reality nephew, to help them both rescue Aurora from Operation Zero Tolerance, an anti-mutant group that was gathering up mutants, while also Havoc stole a deadly experimental gas called Cold Snap. Soon Dark Beast and Havoc continued to lead, excuse me, soon Dark Beast was gone and Havoc continued to lead the Brotherhood, fighting members of humanity's last stand, an anti-mutant group, when they tried to kill the Jenna Nationals. Havoc argued that their enemies should be killed. In time, Havoc led his allies in capturing the Dark Beast, stopping them from unleashing legacy virus-infected captives against humankind. The key issues here are X-Factor 125 and 26, 129, Uncanny X-Men 339, X-Factor 131, X-Men 27 through 29, X-Factor 137, Uncanny X-Men Annual 1997, and finally X-Factor 143 and 144. Let me turn it over to Hussein. Alrighty, so prosecution side. You know, there's something you can say about him being, that is Havoc being under mind control of Dark Beast, but he, by his own admission, says it wore off and I was playing a game. Uh, And so then we have, he admits to being in control of his own facilities. We've got attempted murder. We've got hijacking. We've got uh, stealing weapons of mass destruction. We've got jailbreaks. Um, And because of that jailbreak, you have a mass murder attempted by one of the people he attempted to free from prison, that is the Dark Beast. Um, So basically, Alex says, how do I make the biggest shit show I can? Let me try a few things. And therefore, he's guilty as all hell. Now, on the defense side, obviously, we don't know if he's really worn off Dark Beast, if that mind control's really worked. And, um, you know, Chad, you you had this interesting framing, bringing out the darker side of... uh, uh, more savage side of uh, of Havoc. 
which I think some of that you don't you don't put that genie back in the bottle to use like really racist orientalist language because I can because my name is Hussein Rashid <laughs> and I'm a scholar of Islam so <laughs> I can uh, you can't put that genie back in the bottle so um, I think that we've got to accept that this is now a new Alex we're dealing with and he's trying to figure out who he is and for me the tell of Alex always trying to mitigate difficult situations is when he tries to kill his brother because he knows he can't do anything to Scott. And I feel like that's always the tell. It's like, who can I unleash on so it looks like I'm doing something really dramatic and awesome and know that there are not going to be any repercussions for it. And it's going to be Scott all the time. And for, and for me, that's that's how I think we can sort of say, yes, he's gone after Jameson, but he's expecting to be interrupted. And he knew he could still make it plausible by going after Scott. Um, the the uh, G Nation episode against uh, Humanity's Last Stand, I thought was really great in terms of Alex trying to figure out who he wants to be. Again, I come back to that opening speech, which I just had issues with. He's like, I don't like the word mutant. And I'm like, no, Alex, this is the Alex you need to be, which is how do I figure out that people are going to kill me for me being different and my genetic makeup gives me particular loyalties, whether I want it or not reminds me why i stopped reading comics during this time period because art and the writing i just have no idea what's happening i'm really like uh it's panel to battle it's a whole new comic is awesome um if i were to drink i'm sure it'd be even awesomer so there's a you know i feel like he's not really responsible for this uh uh for anything that's happening here i think there's a great exchange that happens between nate not cable and um and Alex in the X-Men issues. First of all, I don't know why Nate is dressed like he's coming out of limelight um, and just has like a light coat on. He's got this mesh shirt and you're like, dude, that's just so impractical. But, you know, he has this conversation with Alex where... um, Teenage teenage Chad was very happy with that costume. (laughs) That was, you know, I, I knew lots of folks uh in that particular period and i i don't i'm hoping enough of your listeners get limelight references um you know which turn into a cupcake which turn into a gym and then a cupcake shop and they're just pieces of my misspent youth that are now lost but um waiting for it to turn back into a church uh but you know he literally goes to limelight once actually like he actually does yeah yeah he actually does go to limelight in the comics (laughs) that explains so much um but nate has this really great conversation with alex which i really really like it's like it's just two or three pounds it's not really deep but it's like this really i think helps get into some of what's going through alex's mind at this point where you know nate says to me says you started doing these things with good intentions and then he started doing really crappy stuff. And when did the when did the crappy stuff overtake the good intentions? Like I, I forget exactly how he says it, but it's sort of like you had the best of ideas, but this is terrible how you're doing it. And it feels like again, Alex sort of falls into this. Like I'm doing something; it feels good; it's the right thing. And then he stops thinking about it because he's afraid to think about it. And I feel like that's the Alex we're getting in this point, which I kind of really like. Um, but yeah, so I I I think he should be let off just because. When he's trying to figure things out, there's actually not a lot of damage being done. There's actually a lot of good that he's trying to do. Whether you think it's the right way to do it or not is a is a different question. Um, and then when he does really bad stuff, I would argue he's still under beast control. 
Fascinating. For me, before I turn it over to the jury, he's either being controlled by the Dark Beast the whole time, or he's moving from an era where he was the government agent good boy and now embracing Magneto's philosophy. It's the kill or be killed philosophy. He goes after the worst parts of humanity. They will kill us unless we kill them, uh, which is a very popular view, uh, you know, given the Magneto was right movement that has existed all across X-Men history. Uh, fascinating. Let me hear comments and or clarifying questions from the jury on this section of uh, Alex as the leader of the Brotherhood. Mm. It's the hottest he ever looked. <laughs> Again, on certain the, panels. On sure. Certain panels. <laughs> but that little, that subby little harness that he wears this is very cute. Uh, um. Are we voting or am I just... I, uh, this is a I'm chance to ask, add commentary and ask clarifying questions and then we'll vote. I want to commend Zane uh, for reading, rereading all this material. <laughs> this, is, this is some of the worst X-Men comics ever published, in my opinion. Um, uh, yeah, I, uh, I I never want to reread these issues. Um, I, I, I'm the preview of my vote is going to be a giant shrug emoji because I just I don't know even I, I don't this plot is so incoherent that from issue to issue it feels like oh no he's actually no wait he's evil no oh uh, mm, I, I I I have no idea I have no idea what to do I'll, I'll, I'm probably just going to land right in the middle because I don't have anything to say about it. This is a section uh, where we get into a lot of the trials where when we see some characters doing really bad things, we have to ask the question, how effective were they? Yes, he intended potentially to hurt a lot of people, but did he actually hurt anyone? He was willing to blow up that plane, but it didn't blow up. So there's a question of like culpability slash effectiveness that falls into this, which is really interesting. The Sideshow Bob defense, attempted murder. What is that really? <laughs> 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 uh, I I kind of dig I I know I know there's some bad stories told during this time but I kind of dig this version of ha Havoc who's like uh he's like taking off the jacket literally and being willing to just embrace his power and like do something with it. It's right after multiple men died. It's right after all these things were ineffective and he's like, you know, fuck it, I'm just going to go try what everyone else is saying I should do. His continued involvement with the Dark Beast is the most concerning part. Because the Dark Beast is, you know, like uh, just a fucking Nazi scientist who experiments on people kind of guy, right? Like he's a, he's a horrible character. Uh, that's that's almost the most concerning part. Um, and then the interplay with X Man, his nephew who blows up the gas so it can't be used. It's there's some interesting stories in this section, even though a lot of it's not super effective. Uh, comments or questions before we vote? Anybody? Um, I think. <laughs> <laughs> to piggyback on the fact that this was a very weird time for comics in general, especially for him, because this was such a departure for Alex um, to take up at the time Magneto's motto, um, being kind of this mutant extremist in a way, um, was definitely concerning um, because you, again, you want him to be the good guy, but he was taking uh, a few steps forward that didn't really seem the best especially with dark beast is concerned it's one of those things where the reader knows more than the actual character in, in this <laughs> sense. <laughs> um because we knew that hooking up with dark beast is a problem but yet alex didn't realize that 
Um, yeah, so I, I think for for this time frame, it's very weird. Um, and also very, again, concerning, uh, not concerning, I'm not going to say that, uh, telling in a sense that when it was time for Scott to be in this exact same position, he didn't say, hey, bro, I, I, I've been there. I know what you're feeling. He was just like, yeah, Scott was being really, really bad. And now I have to clean up his mess. Sure, sure. Uh, okay, with that, let's vote in this section then. Uh, for me, I'll go first here. I'm going to give it a three. I think it's right in the middle. I think there was control. I like this version of Havoc. Uh, I, I like that he's willing to defend mutants at any cost. That's the part of Magneto that I love. I love that he calls it the Brotherhood, but takes off the evil mutants part at the end. Uh, I love <laughs> Fatal and I fucking hate Post. <laughs> there's, there's some uses of characters that are... Uh, I, that's what I'll condemn him for, is uh, being on a team with Post. <laughs> let's, uh, let's go to Rob next. I didn't even remember Post was in this story at all. Um, God, is that is that in like the X Factor parts? Uh, yeah. Yes, I uh, believe. Oh God, I I yeah. Uh, I I am I'm, I'm gonna give this a three and not think about it too hard because thinking about this story is more energy than it deserves. Noel. Um, I don't know that Alex is in control a whole lot here. But I tend to hold it against characters that they don't learn lessons that they should have learned, like maybe don't associate with people who might do bad things. So I'm going to go two. Andre? Uh, definitely three. Anthony? Yeah, it's a, it's a three for me. It's such a complete ethical muddle. Like, what were you trying to do? <laughs> what were your allegiances? <laughs> I literally don't know so i'll put it in the middle i do think it's interesting that working with dark beast is the most interesting to me like the brotherhood version of alex is the most interesting version because i like the idea of a summers who's like well this isn't working and i do think it's sort of a test run of where we ended up with cyclops in the pre-krakoa era of like sort of the freedom fighter version of him um I do think it's funny. It's trying to replicate the optics from Age of Apocalypse, where again, we see Alex as the ultimate company man, right? Like, even in the world where mutants run the world, he is just the good, faithful, like, I was only following orders guy. Um, But it's the opposite now. It's like, well, he's doing something interesting. I just don't, I literally don't know what he was trying to do. So three. And finally, Hussein. Uh, I'm going to go two here just because I, that whole Dark Beast thing. I'm like, be bold just don't be dark beast bold and the to to give context for our readers who may not be familiar uh during the age of apocalypse which is the reality that dark beast descends from alex was uh, a very twisted dark version of him who was willing to like torture humans and uh propagate the cause of mutants and so dark beast knows alex as that version of himself so when he's uncontrolled or when he's unlocking uh our alex uh he's creating the version he's more familiar with which is interesting we'll get to the trial of dark beast in about seven years on this podcast (laughs) it's gonna take me a while to get that far uh that gives us a total score of uh 16 out of 30 let's jump to trial point three this is the war with the shiar section uh jury assigned as andre andre thank you for taking this dense section of alex's history it's a lot i will try to sum it up briefly before we even start the trial section i just need to give a little bit of chronology for Alex because a lot happens to him here he ends up uh 
trying to reform X Factor. He gets some time traveling characters on his team. It all blows up. And then he gets put into the body of an Alex in the mutant X world. In this world, Alex uh, is uh, living a good life as the leader of a team called the Six. He's married to Madeline Pryor and has a child named Scotty, but he's also like a darker version of Alex. So there's a very long series of Alex trying to uh, live this other life and uh, be, uh, it's it's long. It's called Mutant X, read it if you'd like. There's some good parts and some meh parts. Anyway, the Madeline in that world went evil. After a while, Havoc discovers he's a Nexus being. He ends up back on Earth in a coma. This is where Chuck Austin kicks in. Uh, Annie Gazakazian, who is a human nurse, who, by the way, this you'll, you'll especially Anthony will find this amusing. Chuck Austin describes Annie Gazakazian as his love letter to single mothers in our podcast interview, which is fascinating. Go, go listen if you haven't. Uh, <laughs> Alex tried marrying Lorna, but instead he ends up with Annie. But then Lorna, uh, he fights Iceman for Lorna because Iceman's not out yet. Then Lorna joins Apocalypse and becomes the Horseman. Blah, 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 blah. He gets possessed again by his mutant deck self. He leads a team of X-Men and then decimation happens and the end. Okay, now the trial section. <laughs> Alex... <laughs> Uh, <laughs> Alex and Scott learned that Professor X had kept the secret of the existence of their brother Gabriel from them. Gabriel, using the name Vulcan, goes mad, kills Banshee, tries to kill Xavier. Then he goes back to attack the Shi'ar Empire. Havoc forms a team, including Polaris, Professor X, Warpath, Rachel, and Darwin. They recruit Corvus soon. They are stranded in space where they battle the War Scrolls and the Shi'ar. Uh, the trial hasn't really started at this point. It's all fine. Havoc then works with the Starjammers to liberate Lilandra and her war general, uh, Kaardum. I don't know how you say his name, Kardum, uh, with the intent of getting her back onto the throne of the Shi'ar Empire. So this is a section where we see him interacting or interfering with Shi'ar politics in a weird way. A chaotic battle follows during which Vulcan seemingly murders both Emperor Daken and Cyclops and Havoc's dad, Corsair. Havoc orders Polaris to kill Vulcan, but Vulcan survives. Havoc then takes over as the leader of the Starjammers, and he becomes involved in Shi'ar military stratagems to try to get Lilandra back on the throne. He's like the rebel government. He fights a race called the Skyar Tal. It witnesses the destruction of a planet called Feather's Edge. Then he allies himself with Vulcan, even while making plans to kill Vulcan against this race. Havoc helps kill the leader of the Skyartal called the Eldest. Then Vulcan kills the entire alien race because Alex is unable to stop him. So he allies with this crazy man who then kills the entire alien race. Alex savagely fights Vulcan and destroys a doomsday weapon. Then he ends up captured and tortured with his entire team for a period of weeks. After he was rescued, he tries again and fails to kill Vulcan. The war with Vulcan gets more complex. The Inhumans get involved. The Imperial Guard gets involved. And uh, Alex sees Lilandra kidnapped. He helps rescue her, gets her back to Chandelar, but then she's assassinated in front of him by a group called the Fraternity of Raptors. We'll talk about them some other time. <laughs> Vulcan was then believed killed by Black Bolt as the war ended and Gladiator was put on the throne. So the most concerning parts here are Alex's actions getting out of control as he makes escalating bad decisions and involving himself in uh, himself in alien politics. Uh, not a lot goes right for him here. He tries real hard and never quite gets there. Let me tell uh, the key issues here are, and this is a big section, Uncanny X-Men 475 through 486, X-Men Emperor Vulcan 1 through 5, X-Men Divided We Fall number 1, X-Men Kingbreaker 1 through 4, War of Kings 1 through 6, and 
the uh, weirdly titled War of Kings, Who Will Rule? Number one. <laughs> Let me turn it over to Andre. Um, before I get to this section, I will be the only one of five people who loved the fraternity of raptors because it actually gave uh an explanation of dark hawk who was like one of my favorite heroes from the 90s <laughs> just wanted to plug that one so if we have a conversation later about why dark hawk matters to me i'll be there <laughs> i would love to talk dark, dark hawk with you sometime. <laughs> um um i'm gonna say for trial purposes i think this is the area for alex that allowed him to actually flourish as a hero because it allowed him to be pulled away from the x-men entirely he was pulled away from scott he was pulled away from a lot of things that he has known because up until this point i don't recall i don't believe alex has had any outer space adventures up until this moment so it really uh, cemented the idea that he had to kind of do something um, drastic that did not compromise who he was, but it really just put the hero in front of him because at this point, there was no stopping the fact that he had to put an end to his unknown brother, which is an entirely different conversation um, with Vulcan uh, coming onto the scene and, and Vulcan basically doing everything um, harsh and nasty and angry, including uh, killing his father. So I think when we have the idea that uh, Havoc had to not only take over the leadership of the Starjammers, but get involved in Shi'ar politics and and, and get involved with uh, Lelandra and everything that is uh, just this big old space opera, if you will, um, really allowed Alex to come into his own. It was like a nurturing moment at the time. And I think this was the biggest moment and character defining moment for Alex, because this is when he became that leader. This is when he became that, that, that thing that he had been striving for, I think at this point, what, 30 years to get to, um, and just leading the pathway for, uh, making sure that Vulcan is held accountable for his crimes. Uh, against the universe, against uh, his family, uh, and pretty much anything and everything in between. Um, I think it was also a really great time. I think War of Kings was actually one of my favorite uh, events at that moment because it allowed us to see a lot of the, the cosmic era of things. Um, definitely loving how they brought in all of these other uh, heroes and just like how they just kind of stayed in space <laughs> all the cosmic superheroes was just really fun to read back then um but again alex involvement was something major um and definitely elevated him so from a trial standpoint i think this helped him uh enhance and elevate his status as a superhero uh, i remember buying the comic uh this is back when i was working for marvel but i read the script a few months in advance when they killed lalandra in that i was like what the fuck like it was so crazy and she's never come back that was nuts uh let me uh let me hear comments and questions uh clarifying questions from the jury on this section alex's culpability for this era area for me and i have to be creative as i organize these trials <laughs> but uh was just a series of bad decision making that resulted in really bad things happening uh but he wasn't directly responsible for any of it it just was him 
making terrible alliances and choices and it just kept going wrong yeah he wasn't really doing good in the, the, <laughs> that department <laughs> at all but i mean it i think when you think about it yes those 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 mistakes needed to be made because he had to learn from them i i think also it's it's not clear that there was a better choice in any of those situations absolutely absolutely <laughs> like you know he was he was at least doing something you know, all the other X-Men, they knew that all this shit was happening in, in the Shi'ar Empire um, because half the X-Men returned at the end of Rise and Fall of the Shi'ar Empire. They knew that Vulcan was on the throne. They knew that Lalandra was on the run. And they knew that half the X-Men were trapped there. And they did nothing to come get them, to help them out. Havoc stayed behind. And he, like, fought to, to put things back together, to, to fix things. I know the X-Men had other things going on at the time, you know, the, the whole decimation thing, but there was still, like, this was one of their problems. One of their mutants got away and was causing genocide across the universe. Yeah. yeah. Again, Professor X is a jerk. I just We need to reiterate <laughs> that and, and cement this. Mm -hmm. This is also the era of comics where Professor X has lost his mutant powers from the decimation and he gets them back from the Macron crystal, which is nuts. <laughs> uh, do we uh, do we have any other questions in this section or are we ready to vote here? The Macron crystal has judged Charles Xavier as being worthy of having these powers. That is the point of, <laughs> I, 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 this is my headcanon of it, is the Macron crystal thinks Professor X is right and justified. But then again, the Emcron crystal is also the home of the Phoenix who destroyed all those broccoli people. So, you know, it's its yeah. definition of justice is maybe a little different from ours. Emcron crystal <laughs> is the ultimate chaos agent. Isn't that the crystal that brought us Wolverine? One drop of blood brings Wolverine back to life. Didn't that no. happen in the Emcron crystal? I don't no, remember that. That's that's from X Men Annual Eleven. I think it's a, it's I think it's a completely different crystal. It is a it is a crystal. It is a crystal, but it's just not yeah, it this, it's yeah, not the yeah. chaos crystal. Okay. The Emcron crystal uh, played a huge part in Dan Slott's final story on Fantastic Four. For those who've read them, it was interesting. We'll we'll do an Emcron crystal and the Cron crystal <laughs> episode one day. Okay, let's vote here, uh, Anthony. In this section, uh, what's your vote for Alex? I cannot be mad at a stupid puppy. And that's the extent of Alex's moral culpability, I think, at this point. Like he he's doing he's doing his best. Uh, God bless him. So it's a one for me. Uh Hussein. Uh, this is a straight one for exactly what Anthony said. It is also a one for me. I knew this was a weak trial section, but I had to, you know, we, we needed five sections. Uh Rob, go ahead. Uh I am also gonna give it a one. And Noel. Same one. And Andre. It's a hard one. <laughs> That's a first. We've never had all ones. That's a great. Okay. Uh trial trial point number four. What he needed to do. He was literally on the on the battlefront. He was being a soldier. He was doing the right thing. And that's the only thing you can take away from it. He wasn't he wasn't doing anything bad. He wasn't doing anything that would necessarily say, hmm, that's questionable. Only when it came down to kind of defending certain things. I, I could not give him any of any other point but one. Absolutely. Honestly, he probably comes out of the Brubaker era with the cleanest nose. Absolutely. Of it. Like <laughs> Absolutely. He, he and Warpath. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> 
All right, everybody, okay. let's go to trial point number four. This is the inverted section. And I'm just going to note Anthony Oliveira not only agreed to, but asked for this section. <laughs> I, I misunderstood the assignment. <laughs> Okay, so again, not part of the trial, but we just got to cover some continuity very quickly. Alex went through some more shit. He rejoined X-Factor, broke up with Lorna again, then Cyclops, while possessed by the Phoenix Force, murdered Charles Xavier. Note that I noted he was possessed by the Phoenix Force. Just saying, calm down, it's okay. (laughs) Uh, Havoc was horrified and accepted Captain America's offer to lead a team of Avengers that had both mutant and human heroes on it. Havoc became the public face of mutant relations and made decisions that angered a lot of people. He ended up in a relationship with the Wasp. uh, And in a future that ended up being wiped out and destroyed, they married and had a child named Katie Summers, named after Alex's mother, who was lost. Though Alex and Wasp remember her and uh, hoped for a time at least to make her exist again. Half of Alex's face was uh, horribly scarred, leaving him looking like Deadpool without the mask on one side of his face. Meanwhile, the Red Skull stole the brain of Charles Xavier and then opened a concentration camp for mutants because, you know, Nazis. Uh, When he was killed, he then turned into the Red Onslaught entity. A spell was cast that briefly changed everyone's personalities into the opposite of what they are. History recount. Okay, here's where the trial parts begins. (laughs) Uh, When they were inverted, Havoc and the X-Men were determined to do anything to protect the mutants at any cost. Havoc quit the Avengers Unity Division, broke up with the Wasp, rejoined the X-Men, which was then allied under Apocalypse and united for the cause of mutants against humans. They declared war on humans and promised to slaughter their armies. Havoc and the others built a gene bomb, G-E-N-E, not G-E-A-N, a gene bomb that would wipe out humanity. And he was willing to sacrifice the the Wasp, his own wife, for the cause. The bomb went off, but it was sabotaged. So the X-Men battled the new Avengers, who were at that time a team of inverted villains, which included fucking carnage. (laughs) Before the spells were reversed, Alex refused to give in, staying inverted, and he grabbed the Wasp, taking her away with him as he threatened her life to ensure that that he could still father Katie with her in this timeline. Havoc teamed up with Emma Frost to take extreme measures to protect mutants, including making a deal with Hydra, who briefly ran America, and they formed the mutant land of Nu Tien, which lasted about three seconds, uh, where he fought X-Men Blue and Polaris. Then he teamed up with Bastion and Miss Sinister. It's a weird time. It's a weird time for comics. To release a dangerous substance called Mother Vine that would unleash latent mutant powers and alter them. Uh, This is still during the decimation era. After a fight with Magneto, who refused to join him, Havoc and the others released Mother Vine in several major cities. Havoc and his allies planned to seize control of the mutants, but Magneto and his team soon found a way to reverse Mother Vine. Emma Frost then restored Havoc's heroic side to the surface in his mind and Elixir healed his scars. So he gets a free pass out again in some ways, Uh, but he could still feel his evil self under the surface wanting to escape. Quick quote in this section, in Astonishing X-Men 17, reflecting on this time, he said, quote, I was the victim of an attack by the Red Skull where he altered my brain functions to make me do things I'm not proud of, but I'm better now. Uh, And I want you to note, I completely bypassed the war with the Inhumans in this section, just to keep it smaller. Uh, The key issues here, Avengers and the X-Men, Axis 2, 3, 6, and 9, X-Men Blue 7 through 9, and 23 through 28. Let me turn it over to Mr. Anthony. Oh boy. Uh, <laughs> so, as I said, I misunderstood the assignment. I thought 
<laughs> I thought what I was asking to reread was Uncanny Avengers, which would have included the speech off the top about don't call me a mutant, love is love, I don't see color, all that stuff, um, which I did want to put him on trial for. But, <laughs> but I guess we're not doing that. So uh, prosecution first, I think. This is easily... Honestly, probably the most genocidal period for almost any period of the X-Men. Like, we're in the edgy years, the decimation years. So there's like the three sections. So Avengers versus Axis, he is working with Apocalypse to build the gene bomb, which will kill all non-mutant life on the planet. Like, that's his job. That's his plan. Um the X-Men Blue period, he is collaborating with the Nazi regime that runs America at the time <laughs> so that they can found Nutian. That is what they're doing. They're also mind wiping young Cyclops because this is the period where there's the young Cyclops uh, to install old Cyclops inside him for Emma. And like the implications there are that she will now resume her relationship with this teen boy. Uh, so Havoc is in on that. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's extreme. We're, we're, in, we're in the times. And then the Mother Vine stuff in X-Men Blue. Um, again, they're trying to combat the decimation. Uh, Mother Vine is, God, do I explain what Mother Vine is? Mother Vine is the distillation of the ultimate universe's version of mutants. It is the the gene in the ultimate universe. It turns out that all mutants are artificially created by this Mother Vine stuff. Miss Sinister has synthesized it. And the plan is to create a race of mutants by gassing the planet but they will be um, mentally enslaved to Miss Sinister, who is uh, Havoc's ally in this. So his body count is through the roof. A lot of people die during these stories um, when their mutant powers manifest or their non-mutant powers because they're artificially created. Um, but the in defense, uh, this is a really classic non-compass mentis. He is not in his right mind. In fact, because of the way the inversion works, as bad as he is indicates what a good person he actually is <laughs> because, <laughs> because this is literally his ethical opposite being made uh, manifest. So he is uh, not responsible for the gene bomb. In fact, his willingness to take part in the gene bomb indicates he is actually quite an integrationist. See above, re, don't call me mutant. Uh, it is worth pointing out that his allies in this story are Nightcrawler, Storm, and rogue uh so if we're going to hold him responsible they are just as responsible nutian he is still inverted he is one of the few people on earth who remains inverted after the red skull story because uh iron man protects him and Sabretooth from being restored to normal so he is still inverted for that story and similarly inverted until the end of the x-men blue story when emma and lorna put his brain and face back together so uh, that would be my defense for this period. Uh, I can't defend the period, but I will defend Havoc in the period. <laughs> there are there are sections of this conversation I'm like, oh, fascinating. And this is the one I'm like, bleh. <laughs> uh, Emma, Emma's characterization in this era is so bad. Bleh. Leah, Leah Williams oh. has done her very best to reset her. And then we've got a better Emma on Krakoa, but this is the worst. I could literally have an hour conversation of an inverted saber tooth having a relationship with Monet 
for an hour and and just like rail on it because it was so awful. <laughs> it's a weird it's a weird habit of Remender's mind as a writer. Like it it really is the let's do it to everybody story that was behind the Captain America Nazi stuff, right? Like yeah, yeah. There's this all the this is also the period with Claw K L U H the Hulk's Hulk. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. So uh, it's I don't know what we get. But what as I said, what's interesting about it is like, well, if this is the opposite of Havoc, what do we learn about Havoc? Right. And if the opposite of Havoc is this kind of uh, intense, uh, by any means, mutant freedom fighter, I think what we're seeing in relief here is that he's kind of a milk toast. uh, Let's not rock the boat too much kind of guy in his normal life. Right. It's kind of a very different take on the uh, Siege Perilous stuff, I think. My understanding is Remender made uh, like RPG character sheets. Like when you when you plot out a character for an RPG game and you give yourself certain points for heroism and like there's different scales. You have a five oh, and, interesting. and a one and another. And then he literally inverted those numbers for characters. So you got a character like Sam Wilson, who's Captain America at the time, doing some crazy evil shit because he's so noble in his regular life and now he's been inverted into this dark evil version it's it, it's interesting as a character study uh because they did put a lot of thought into it but the fact that havoc and Sabretooth stay inverted when everyone goes back is interesting you also saw a very heroic carnage during this time carnage right. normally he's still so a confederate evil. though he still right. loves the confederate flag <laughs> <Yeah>. and <laughs> leonard skinner like that's they go out of their way to clarify that too which is itself very uh, interesting as a character choice. We get a we get all new hobgoblin during this time too. There's some interesting stories that came out. Uh, any clarifying points on this section, or should we jump into vote? I was wondering the the whole like new Tion thing. Um, like old Tion is from the Ultimate Universe, right? Like there wasn't a Tion in the Marvel Universe before this, was there? Am I like completely mis? <clears throat> It felt like the X-Men's role in the whole Secret Empire story was this afterthought that, oh yeah, they're also, they we gotta have them all doing something. Yeah, it's like, um, it's like they needed a reason to keep them off the map. Let's give them a mutant nation. And then they told a few stories there, but it was very short-lived during the Secret Empire era. Yeah. yeah. And then, uh, fill me in, I, uh, the Secret Empire ends with a cosmic reset button. Like none of it actually happened? Or no, 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 it, it still happened. Mm-hmm. Oh, it did. In fact, yeah. the evil. In fact, the evil Steve Rogers, the one that was the Nazi, is still present. He's like in an American jail. It's, it's oh, fun. Yeah, yeah. It actually happened. <laughs> I'm so glad that character's still around. <laughs> um, I think it's called New Tion because Zorn is in charge of it, and Zorn is from Tion, right? That's that, I, like it's, I want to say oh. yeah because they and. I don't want to get caught into the Zorn of it all, but it's it's the good good Zorn, right, the nice right. but, Zorn. Yeah. But Zorn, like Zorn, is from Tion in the Ultimate Universe. Tion doesn't exist in six one six, does it? Like Tion, uh, Zorn is from China. In in, in I am in, looking at his wiki page, and it says he is uh, around from. From Tian. It's oh, Tian. yeah. I don't. I would. Huh. I would have to research that to answer it, Rob. I'll try to put I, some stuff up on Twitter, but I. I truly. On. I truly do not know the answer offhand. It is never worth researching Zorn. 
<laughs> and I am and I am uh, easily uh, I, a weak spot in my Marvel knowledge is the Ultimate Universe. I've read them, but I have not paid a lot of attention nor nor kept the chronology like I do with the regular comics. Yeah, I'm looking at it and it's it is new Tion because the two Zorn brothers, Zorn with an X and Zorn with a Z <laughs> are working in Tion first. So presumably because he is the ruler of new Tion, which I think is Los Angeles, if I'm not mistaken, um, it's because he's in charge. This is uh, for our comics listeners. This is a weird section of continuity. The, <laughs> one of the interesting components as a fallout from this just discussion point is this is right after this is when Ta-Nehisi Coates took over Captain America. We have a black writer on the book and he used this. He had this idea of Steve Rogers as an American hero who has is now associated. His face is associated with this guy who was like the ultimate Nazi that took over the world. And Ta-Nehisi Coates picks that up in his run on Cap, who's trying to restore his reputation. It's a it's an interesting era of, of Cap's history, but this is not a Captain America podcast. Let's, uh, let's, uh, let's jump into voting on Havoc's culpability in this section. Uh, Hussein, will you go first? Yeah, this is this is a straight up one for me. Uh, yeah, the mind control and the magic of it all it leads into a one, and the magic of it all, and the fact that you know this was the one section I told you I didn't want to do in the trial because it is a <laughs> hot mess. And it's like no, no, I'm just going to pretend it's a one because if I could give it a zero, I would. Anthony, thank you for sticking with this, even though you misunderstood this. <laughs> I mean, it was it was fun to sort of be, you know, marched through it. Like, well, let's see what's in here. Um, so it, I am I'm very pleased I got this assignment. It's interesting to review the continuity sometimes. Uh, yeah. Rock, go ahead. Uh, yeah, I I think this is a, a you know a no mens rea sort of thing. Like the, this is automatism. He's he's not guilty. This is a one. And Noel. One. Andre. Um. <laughs> I was conflicted. Um, yes, I know that he was inverted, but he did some really dangerous, dastardly shit while he was inverted. Like, uh, but that's I, how you know he's a good person. That's how you know. <laughs> yeah, but I think I drew the line at the, at the gene bomb. Like, you were literally <laughs> willing to decimate all of the humans just to make them all mutants and then enslave them. And then not only that, he was like. Hey, so me and Janet had a relationship in this alternate universe. So I'm going to instill that again into this one and then kidnap her and then held her hostage. I'm going to raise your child, even though you, you and I in this universe have never met in like in that situation. I'll keep you I alive as breeding stock was kind of the message. Yeah, like he yeah, yeah. literally was doing some really awful shit. And so for me, this was this was a four. He also very specifically asks for an exception for Jan um, from Cyclops from the gene bomb. And Cyclops is like, no exceptions. He's like, oh, okay. And like, <laughs> like he still goes along with it. He still um, goes along with it. I, I just, I, yeah, I, there's just something about like, again, I know it was inverted, but like he specifically, Havoc was doing some, some really awful shit. And Can then, I ask uh, a question? Oh yeah, please. And, uh, then, and then it's your vote after your question. Oh, I'm a one. Okay. Um, for this, uh, but I would ask: Does it change anybody's vote if we include the Unity Squad? Like, <laughs> how ethically culpable is Alex for joining the Unity Squad, including that speech? Like, how do we feel? Because then Five. I'm like, 
yeah, then I changed my vote. I'm actually, well, that's a four at least for me because I find the the project of the Unity Squad quite disgusting. <laughs> so. uh, give us, we have we have a couple minutes. Give us your thoughts on, I would just love to pick your brain on the Unity Squad for a second, Anthony. Myself? I, I think that it is, uh, especially when it is launched with that speech Havoc gives, it is to me such a monstrous betrayal of what so many people in his life have been working for to completely dismiss not only the political activity of so many of the people in his life, but to actually say that the identity by which they have defined their lives is ultimately invalid and um, aberrant, right? Like it's like the, the accident of your genes does not a community or culture make is his argument in that moment. And to me, that's such an invalidating and publicly damaging thing to say or do. Um, it, to me, verges almost on like the rhetoric of sort of these like, like a the buck angel is mobilizing against the trans community right now, where it's like, well, yeah, I'm different, but that doesn't like, that's a condition that needs to be treated. That is not a culture, community or identity deserving of respect. Um, and that to me is a really, that it actually is the most horrible thing Havoc has ever done in his, in his comic book history. To me, I mean, these are just stories, but that's an interesting peg to which I feel like the character is incredibly vulnerable and to me is organic with everything we've seen before, right? While it is a reversion to type, it is the same guy who works for Valerie Cooper's X Factor. It is the same guy that the Siege Perilous gets the number of when it when he passes through it. It's it's interesting to me because uh, he kind of finds himself in space, but nothing ever goes right, and then he comes back to Earth, and nothing goes right again, and then he gets <laughs> and then he gets his mind controlled again. Uh, as a fan, just reading uh, the this Uncanny Avengers the mix of the two worlds and the scope of the stories that, I mean, you open up with the Red Skull taking Professor X's brain. Holy fuck. And then like Archangel's dark babies, uh, like <laughs> taking over and allying with Pang, the, the horsemen being a mix of Avengers villains and X-Men villains. Like that part of it was really fun for me as a read, but as a character study for Havoc, it's, <laughs> it's terrible. Uh, yeah. And Ro Rogue is Rogue and Wanda are really weird. And really story. ugly exchanges yeah. between those two. And that's what I mean is like, there's something sort of insidiously ugly about the story because it does agree with him. I think it does think that it does think the unity squad is a project worth defending. Um, and that's why I'm like, ooh, what a fascinating, gross moment uh, yeah. in history. Which, and uh, yeah. The Captain America <laughs> Havoc relationship like, is fascinating to me as well. And Anthony, I, I think we can I think we can take that moment and say, yes, it was a really, really great moment. But I think we're also forgetting there were subsequent other moments that would overshadow the idea that he was trying to do good in that moment. Yeah. Like, after being inverted and you know, staying inverted, let's let's not forget that. It, during this time, the Inhuman War was happening. The Terrigen mm -hmm. Cloud was going on. He was actively working with Emma to do Mothervine to co and you know to to, to to combat the Terrigen Cloud. Like he's like actively saying, "No, I want us all to be the dominant species." Like he was doing this, yeah, with Emma. And if we were blaming Emma for the war with the Inhumans, we can literally blame him for the same thing. 
And this is the era of Emma where she's like, like you murdered my boyfriend, so I'm going to kill your whole fucking race. It's a weird... Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> and we completely was like, she did this. <laughs> and um, we can blame her for those things. And she wasn't being mind controlled. At that point, like, I think this, this is a very dark time for him. But it also did show who he was in, in those moments. Like, again, when the siege trailer showed him who he was, the inversion showed him who he was. Let's hear about that, and we'll have to move on. Yeah, I just, I, I just want to challenge a little bit of what Anthony said about um, the book being on the side of the Unity Squad existing. I, I agree that the book does argue that the, that the whole thesis of the book is Unity is important. Um, however, I think the book actually challenges the way that Captain America goes about it. Um, one of the, the recurring themes of the book is that one of the problems with the Unity Squad is that the Avengers don't actually trust the mutants and vice versa. Um, the, Captain America is constantly undermining Havoc's leadership. Um, he is constantly casting judgment on what Wolverine did in the previous Remender arc on Uncanny X-Force. Um, they, because they're not fully forthright with each other about every about where they stand, that's why Kang is able to take over the world, Kang and the Apocalypse Twins. And Alex is the one who leads the squad back to restoring the universe at the end of the story. Uh, so I think that, I think it is a little bit gray uh, there in that like, you know, it's it's saying yes, unity good, but you know, it doesn't necessarily just mean deference to authority. Yeah, I think that is fair. I think that by the same token, um, its critique is universal, right? Like it, it doesn't give any credence to, uh, like it, it condemns the X-Men for being distrustful <laughs> of the Avengers, right? Like it does think unity above all is its great value. Whereas like the best, I think it's an interesting story. Like I think that scene of Alex, as I said, is like a perfectly out of character moment. I think it's telling that the best response to it is not in the book. The best response to it is uh, Kitty Pride's response to it when she's watching it on the news and says to the young X-Men, this man does not speak for me. I grew up Jewish long before I knew I was a mutant and I can pass sometimes and I can't sometimes, but I never forget. And it and the way the world, as long as the world treats me that way, then my the culture, the community, the identity will always matter to me. I will never reject the word mutant because I heard the word as an insult long before I heard it as an identity. Sure. Um, and that's not organic to the book. That's not organic. Like it's like, well, unity is great, but human nature will always get in the way seems to be what Uncanny Avengers is saying to me. It was very bootlicker. It was very, very bootlicker for him to in, the, in that moment. Um, it was like that conversation when you have uh, about like uh, the cops that do wrong that there's some bad apples and there there's some good apples but you know we have to kind of look at it yeah in a very weird lens he was doing that to the mutants like hey yes yeah, some of us aren't that great but including my brother right like including it's very my <laughs> right <laughs> there i would love to host a conversation about captain america's take on mutants sometime because this is a man who has his origins in i'm a privileged american although he came from poverty who witnessed the atrocities of the third reich firsthand as a soldier and as the representative of what America is. But what makes Captain America fascinating to me is how he views the American problem. And we have this idea in politics of 
you know, people shrugging and yes, transgender people are attacked and yes, police attack black people and yes, gay people don't have equal rights, but we have to give time for the great American problem to sort itself out and let's just give it a few decades and see what happens. And that's almost how Captain America views the mutant issue. I would love to have, we could have a whole thing about that, which is oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, Alex should have questioned whether, like why him and Scott were so interchangeable at that moment, because he would say the same thing to Scott. Like, I love Steve. But literally, you are saying the same things you would say to Scott, like, hey, Scott, I need you to really be that person for me because I can't speak for you guys. So you have to be that mouthpiece. Like, we we could go on and on about this, but we're down to 20 minutes before we have yeah, to have sorry. a hard stop. So I'm going to run to our last trial section. But uh, let me let me have some thoughts. I love having panel discussions on this. Maybe we uh, we regather at a future date to just talk about this. I think it'd be fascinating. Sorry uh, for derailing. Oh, no, no. I invited <laughs> you to derail. And this this might be my favorite part of the trial, actually, <laughs> this, uh, this conversation in the last 15 minutes. Okay, okay. Trial point five. This takes us up to the Krakoan era. We're titling this section Hellion. Uh, Rob is assigned here. While trying to heal from the time he was inverted, Havoc grew determined to reclaim his status as a hero. He fought a monster and destroyed a building which frustrated the Avengers. He then chose to, without the blessing of his mutant peers, form a new X-Men team, recruiting Beast, who had just left the X-Men after the Watcher called him a dick for messing with the space-time continuum, uh, Banshee, who was like a decaying zombie after being revived as a horseman with the Celestial Seed, Warpath, Colossus, who was a drunk, and Dazzler, who, uh, well, anyway, Havoc realized that Bastion had put tech inside of him, and he allied with the Reavers and the Office of National Emergency before he turned himself in to the one ONE, which is again an anti-mutant government group, to try to get them off of the X-Men's back. Later, Cyclops rescued him and recruited him to a new X-Men team where he reluctantly worked with the Dark Beast again. He had a genetic bomb placed in his abdomen that altered his ability to use his powers at their upper limits. Over the following weeks, they saw a lot of X-Men die, Wolvesbane, Chamber, Sunspot, and after a series of disastrous battles, Havoc died willingly using his power to destroy some Sentinels. Later, he's resurrected on Krakoa. He goes on a mission with the X-Men to stop the Hellfire cult, yet another anti-mutant <laughs> culty group, uh, and his dark side takes over, causing Havoc to lash out against the villains, cruelly burning one. Havoc had no memory of this dark side, and he was placed on the team of Hellions, mutants with destructive natures who were being unleashed to try to refit into society. Uh, and it's literally a team of murderers and anti-heroes and people who are acting as beasts and assassins. They're guided by Mr. Sinister on a series of destructive missions. Sinister lies to and manipulates the team, killing them and resurrecting them without their memories. When it all comes to light, they learn that the team leader Psylocke has been lying because Sinister has been keeping hostage the DNA of her daughter. Manipulated by Empath, Havoc then gives into his dark side once again and blows up Sinister's lab, destroying the DNA of her child. Uh, Havoc is now newly appointed on the new X-Men team, seemingly just to spy Cyclops, which is a fascinating thing. That's where he's currently at in continuity as we record this. Uh, key issues here are Astonishing X-Men Volume 4, 13 through 17, Uncanny X-Men Volume 5, 12 through 19, and Hellions 1 through 18. Let me turn it over to Rob. All right. Uh, so uh, I was really excited to do uh, this run. Um, I, I actually, uh, I think the uh, Rosenberg run on X-Men is uh, is really underrated. I think, um, uh, especially on rereading it, uh, I really enjoyed getting, uh, getting in, uh, into this again. Um, I think it's really fascinating here. I think he's got a really uh, strong take on, on Havoc, uh, particularly in that uh, astonishing run. Um, 
he uh, he sees havoc as uh, okay. Th- this is you know to be fair, this is kind of a, a stock uh, Rosenberg character of the guy who's uh, a little dumb over his head. Uh, tends to like play with the bad guys, but try to manipulate them and then ends up lucking out into winning. He's, he's kind of done that story a number of times. I think it really works here though. Um, in this case, I, he, he does kind of, uh, if I'm going for the prosecution notes here, he wants us to believe that Havoc is uh, lying to the X-Men, uh, that he's trying to manipulate them into just protecting himself. Um, even though like within the own logic of the story uh warpath sees through that and says i know that's not what you're doing you're you're just trying to protect them by getting them away from you by fessing up in the end um i I don't think this is like the worst that we can say in this run is that um you know had he just left that monster for the avengers to deal with then that building that was evacuated wouldn't have been knocked down at the same time and Yada yada. I mean, you know, it's not like the Avengers had told him not to not to stop the monster that's rampaging through Manhattan. We've got it under control. I mean, the Avengers kind of swoop in at the last minute uh, without, you know, and just blame him for like, how dare you stop that monster that was rampaging? Um, and then, you know, he he uh, keeps trying to form an X-Men team, even though Kitty tells him to get lost uh, and threatens him with copyright infringement, which I think is a is a fun running joke in that uh, in that uh, story. Um, but otherwise, I mean, like, what does he do? He cheers up Colossus. He uh, gets Beast, uh, you know, sort of remotivated to be a hero again, um, and uh, sort of like gives Banshee a, a reason to go on. Um, he gives. Dazzler a reason to abandon her like failing uh new tour which just like looks really fucking depressing <laughs> um even though even though he only a- invites her to the team accidentally uh, you know seems like uh like they kind of have a moment toward the end where they they see each other through and then he sacrifices himself for the team um i you know he he okay he pairs up with uh the reavers and uh he does give them the thing that Bastion put inside his head. That's dumb uh, and seemed to be completely unnecessary. Uh, but you know, uh, it it hasn't it hasn't come back to bite them yet. So you know, who knows? Um, as for the the second half of the run over in Uncanny X Men, um, you know, I, I I'm not really sure what we're prosecuting here. He is one of the few X-Men who is uh, left alive after uh, Nate Gray teleports all the mutants into the Age of X-Men world. Uh, and the humans have unleashed a, a, a vaccine for, for mutantdom, which um, I just, you know, it's a good thing this story came out pre-COVID because uh, the idea of a vaccine that the entire world would just take unquestioningly uh, overnight is is now something that strains credulity but uh um you know he is part of a team that is is actively uh you know working to solve mutant problems knowing that the end times are coming and he doesn't decide to like you know we're just gonna i'm i'm just gonna sit it out mutants are done the war is over which could have been his story um and would have been in character with 
you know, some of the the other takes that we've seen on the on this character, but he he sticks around and he is one of the strongest critics of some of the more morally questionable things that the team does, uh, including teaming up with Dark Beast. Um, and that is uh, that is the most morally questionable thing that this team does in this this thing. He, you know, uh, he does he gets outvoted unfortunately, uh, by the team because they've, they've installed a, a, a leaderless democracy to, uh, to run the X-Men at this point. And uh, yeah, uh, but ultimately the upshot of that is that the mutant cure is eliminated. Um, the, uh, the X-Men are, are free again, basically. And then uh, when the Sentinel strike, he sacrifices himself to save Cyclops because he knows that Cyclops is the more important leader right now to get the X-Men, uh, lead the X-Men through this last moment of their uh, their lives. Um, when we get into Hellions, um, again, like he's sort of the, he's a pawn here. Um, the, the bad things that he does in the lead up to Hellions are eventually revealed to be uh, empath manipulating him on the white queen's direction once again um so it's it's hard to find a like a prosecution angle here i i gotta be honest um so i i am once again playing defense here um he is he is allied with some of the worst people uh, on krakoa at the direction of the krakoan quiet council um and he's basically being being blackmailed here like he's being threatened with like you know, otherwise we have to send you to the pit. Um, in the end, we we get sort of like uh, a a weird like question of of morality around the idea of resurrecting Madeline Pryor that he's been pushing for, and the council says no. And when the council finally relents and lets her back, she's angry with him. Like, how dare you treat me like a prize that you know you brought me back to life? Like, why is this your thing? And I'm like, okay. I, you're upset about this like that's kind of a weird thing but um i i'm i don't know i think we, we might be uh seeing some actual like some more moral consequences of bringing madeline back to life uh in some upcoming stories that have been trailed uh with the dark web and in new mutants um but i don't know he he seems to have his heart in, in the right place in in all of these stories uh, so I, I'm leaning on the defense here. I love Madeline Pryor. We'll have that conversation another time too. Uh, really fascinating to me that he still kind of seems to have this underlying dark side that he, that was sometimes comes out. We don't have time for commentary on this section. So we're going to jump straight to vote. I hope that's okay with everybody just so we can end on time. Uh, but Rob Butel's really summarized. Uh, Noel, what's your vote in this section? I'm going to go three for the dark beast situation. Andre. One. Anthony? Oh, you're on mute, Anthony. All right. I, I feel like we're in a two zone to me. Like, he's messy, but not doing anything particularly <laughs> malevolent. So, uh, Hussein? I'm going to go one here. It is a two for me as well. And finally, Rob. I'm a one on this one. I, yeah, I think he's, he's, you know, the moral character through both of these stories. 
uh, that gives us a 10 out of uh, out of uh, 30 available and his final score is 35 out of 150 which gives him a 35 percent on our asphalt scale which is i think our lowest to date uh this is a character that we love we had to be creative about uh what to put him on trial for i love this character i love this conversation i love how much we were able to get into it from so many different angles today uh, thank you to this esteemed, wonderful panel of intelligent, pretty, incredible people that I respect and admire. Thank you for the gift of your time and talents today. As we are exiting, just so we can finish on time, I'm going to kind of rush through it. Uh, let people know where we can find you online and what we might have to look forward coming up if you'd like to plug anything. Recognizing this episode will drop on around November 3rd. Gray Malkin Lane is uh, under Gray Malkin PP, like podcast on Twitter, Gray Malkin underscore Lane on Instagram. We have a TikTok now and a Public. So check us out. Watch the stuff we're doing with videos uh, and art. It's a lot of great stuff. I've got cool announcements coming into the new year, but the episode immediately after this is going to be uh, about Uncanny X-Men minus one, uh, the uh, backstory of the Trask family. Uh, in And we'll be featuring the talents of uh, Andrew Drillon, uh, Demanda Martini, and Juan Ponce that day. It's going to be fun. Uh, make sure to join us. The Patreon episode that came out right before this is... <laughs> <laughs> our Halloween episode all about Obnoxio the Clown with Marcus Andasso, and it's so fun. So make sure to give it a listen. Uh, uh, let's, uh, I'll, I'll just call you guys one at a time as we do our uh, outros. Uh, Rob, would you like to go first? Uh, yeah, thank you so much for having me on. It's, uh, it's always a pleasure. Um, you can find me on Twitter or Instagram at Rob Salerno or uh, at my uh, blog, therobsalerno.com if you're looking for that Iceman information. And then Andre. Um, I have nothing to plug because it's just me being a normal nerd and just, you know, having fun these days. Uh, but you can pretty much find me on Instagram and Twitter at talk nerdy to me, um, spelled T A L K N R D Y the number two M E. Um, and then I'm also just hanging out being a co-admin on the new Xavier Institute for higher learning on Facebook. Fantastic. Uh, both Rob and Andre, if I may say, post delicious, thirsty content from time to time. I'm all over it. I'm here for it. <laughs> uh, let's go to Noelle next. Yes, my podcast is X-Men Unraveled. Um, find it at X-Men Unraveled on Twitter or Instagram. And my own Twitter is at L Unraveled, E-L-L-E Unraveled. And uh, Anthony. Uh M-E, Mia Koopa is me on Twitter and Instagram and other things. M-E-A-K-O-O-P-A, -O bad Latin Super Mario pun. Uh, <laughs> early November, I'm not sure we'll have anything to announce, but maybe soon. Uh, I can't wait. I love everything you're putting out there, my friend. Uh, oh, thank your, you. your name is on it. I buy it. I am into it. And I'm so glad uh, to have met you at FlameCon. It's good to see you again. I got a very amazing Gray Malkin Lane t-shirt at FlameCon. <laughs> you should go on Public and get that shirt, everybody. They're so good. It. Seth, Seth Martel <laughs> designed it and it's great. I love it. Uh, and then finally, Hussein. Uh, I am on Twitter at Islamo Yankee, I-S-L-A-M-Y-A-N-K-E-E. -E. Please buy my Miss Marvel book. I have a new co-edited 
chapter and a book called Are the Arts Essential? Which makes an argument that the arts are essential, which seems appropriate for this group here. Uh, and I have a new coded book on teaching critical religious studies for those of you who want to get into a different type of geekdom, which is, you know, higher ed, which is failing. But that's a whole separate conversation. <laughs> uh, at, at the end of the trials, I always announce the next one. Our trial uh, being recorded a month after this will be the joint trial of the Untouchable Men, uh, Vanisher and Eunice the Untouchable. Uh, so uh, join us back for uh, those two. Thank you, thank you, thank you to all the listeners for your support. Thank you especially to this jury today. I had a blast. Uh, we'll see you guys all back here next time on Grand Malkin Lane. Thank you for listening to Grand Malkin Lane. We hope you are enjoying this podcast. Grand Malkin Lane is produced and recorded in Salt Lake City, Utah, with music and editing done by my husband, Michael Bell, and promo art done by the incredible Seth Martell. Look for us on Patreon, where we are releasing weekly episodes about obscure characters and facts. Uh, it's a great way to participate with the podcast for only just a couple of dollars a month, and it helps support what we are doing here. Also, the best way you could help Grand Malkin Lane is by sharing and liking and subscribing, but also please leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. We'll see you back here next time on Grand Malkin Lane.